Hey everybody, Clint Fossey here and welcome back to the 34th edition of the Clint Fossey podcast series entitled The Journey to Self-Enlightenment with Andrew Curtin and Carmen Rendell from Soul Hub. You know, we've all had our journeys in life and we've all had our stories and in this uh, fascinating podcast, I sit down with Andrew and Carmen and talk about how, you know, their two parallel lives and, all, and the journeys that they both went on and, you know, the highs, the lows, the successes, the divorces, the career highlights, the career lows and and, and, and just they share so openly about how, you know, they, they, how they weave their way through life and, and sort of found themselves uh, now together as partners. It's, it's a, an amazing story of how, you know, Carmen started Soul Hub, an initiative where she, which, which she started uh, some years back in terms of trying to find a centralized place for anyone who's looking for help, looking for enlightenment, um, you know, which, which is an amazing initiative. And then obviously how her and Andrew uh, got involved with that and all the great work they're doing with Soul Hub. Um, if you are struggling personally, then always reach out to me, clintfoster.com forward slash help me. Uh, also working really hard on the Wildfoot um, program. So, he, you know, healing a lot of trauma through food. So if you need to find out more about that and also, you know, get a little bit of extra energy, release some stress and lose some weight as well, then clintfoster.com forward slash Wildfoot. I just want to thank Andrew and Carmen once again so much for their sharing so openly with their time. They're doing some amazing stuff at Soul Hub. So go check it out. I'll put up all the links in the show notes as usual. I know you're going to love this one, so strap in and enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. here and welcome back to the 34th edition of the Clint Forsley podcast. Today we are joined all the way from warm London by Andrew and Carmen. Welcome to the podcast guys. Thank you. Thanks Clint. Thanks for having us. So firstly before we get into the topic of today's podcast, a shout out to an ex-rugby friend of mine Greg Herdman Herders who connected Carmen and I originally. Um, Herders thank you so much brother and I hope you are dominating the dance floor wherever you are. I remember your moves fondly uh, from our time in South Africa together. Common is Greg still dominating youth, the dance floors in the UK for us? Uh, it, it's, well, whenever his kids allow him, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he but yeah, one of those embarrassing dads now. Hey, Greg. Is he? Epic, epic. <laughs> so anyway, Greg, thanks for the, the uh, intro. So today, the, the, the topic of today's conversation is the journey to self-enlightenment. And, and, and we've all had, um, between Carmen and Andrew and myself, all had our own journeys. And the idea for them, and they, you know, Carmen founded and run a, a company called Soul Hub, uh, was just to understand how they, I guess, went from sort of the the, the typical corporate people to the more evolved uh, spiritual humans and all the challenges along the path and how Soul Hub was founded and um, and you know and its mission in terms of helping people. And I know you've got some great stuff coming up which we'd love to talk about later. So as we always do in the podcast, we start all the way in the very beginning. Uh, you guys can choose who you want to go first. Where were you born? What are you like as a kid? And what are your interests? I thought it was ladies first. <laughs> okay. Uh, I know how you love to talk, darling. Well, as you can probably gather from my voice, uh, not too far away from, from where you were born. Actually, to be fair, I was born in, in Zimbabwe or Rhodesia back uh, as it was then, um, and then moved to South Africa with my parents in, uh, when I was about four or five. So, yeah, grew up, um, you know, in the bush um, in a small town. Um, and, uh, yeah, just, I guess... Um, that, that, that's kind of where, uh, where I was born and, and uh, was there for 20 years and then immigrated to, to the UK. So, yeah. And, and what, 
what did life look for you as a kid? I mean, I mean, I know dance is your thing, but from an interest perspective, where, where did your passion lie when you were growing up? All right, so um, I guess as a very young boy, I was incredibly shy um, and uh, and quite chubby. <laughs> so um, I, was, I was bullied a lot at school, <clears throat> um, which I think then inspired me to take on martial arts and do karate <laughs> and, and, and follow that kind of stuff. Bruce Lee and, and uh, Chuck Norris and all that were my kind of heroes, you know? Um, and I think we all got brought up on the A-team and all that kind of stuff. So MacGyver. Um, action hero he-man you know that was it yeah, um, and then um i guess also at the same time you know if you left me on my own um with with music i also became the sort of dance diva but as soon as anyone came into the room then i would re revert back to my you know shy mm -hmm. shy uh, personality but then when i was um eight years old my sister was actually turning 21 um and she dragged me kicking and screaming onto her dance the dance lover party um and uh taught me my first sort of basic dance lesson uh needless to say i stayed on the floor until about two o'clock the next morning yeah. um and i then realized you know the love of dance and then when i was 10 dirty dancing came out and got everyone dancing a bit like strictly or or dancing with the stars gets yeah. everyone up and dancing <clears throat> you know and then my sister started to go along to those. And then a couple of guys in my class started to go to ballroom dancing classes. And I thought of, well, you guys are brave enough and then I'm going to give it a go. Uh, Cause I was being bullied anyway. So, and that was the beginning of my journey into um, ballroom dancing. Um, so yeah. And, and then obviously, you know, being South African, you play rugby and you do all the other sports. Um, so it would be quite surreal that I'd be standing on the rugby field thinking, what the hell are you doing here? You know, you're a dancer. Um, and then equally, I'd be on the dance floor with a black eye and I'd just come off the rugby pitch. And I'm being concussed and, you know, and I'm chubby and, you know, playing prop or whatever. And I go, Dude, what are you doing on the dance floor? You know, it's just, and so I lived in these kind of parallel worlds for, for quite a while. But then um, got to an age where I realized that uh, if I wanted to see my 21st birthday, not in a wheelchair, mm -hmm. Uh, that I would stop rugby because I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't huge. I wasn't a big guy. So um, that was the decision to pursue, I guess, dancing more than more than rugby. So I just want to pause there for, for people who don't know the South African culture. And I think it's very, very important. So, you know, I mean, kids can be assholes, right? I mean, especially in a boys, alpha male dominated play rugby first. From, from a dance perspective, I mean, that must have been a huge internal wrestle during those days because you know, I mean, for me, my perception, you know, the generation coming through is more accepting of dance and creativity and flair and all the things. But going back to when you and I are probably similar age, but when, when, when you were young, having this amazing passion that you knew you wanted to do, but then kind of felt, well, I can't do that because of, because of you know, what, what the uh, interpretations or how everyone would think about me. So, I mean, have you reflected on that a lot or was it just a huge, something that you just... Uh -huh. Yeah, no, I have reflected on it a lot. Um, I guess, uh, I guess because the, the love of dance, so that just said that, I mean, it sounds very cliche, but just, you know, the rhythm was in me, like I just couldn't stop it, right? Yeah. I was, you know, some people refer to me sort of as like Billy Elliot, you know, um, but it's just, I, I, it was all I really wanted to do ultimately. But there was also an aspect which kind of led to me starting or, or continuing maybe is that um, I grew up in a, in a family where all my um, siblings were much, much older than me. Um, and I was always around adults. And, and I don't know if you had a similar experience growing up in South Africa, but it's quite a conservative, almost slightly colonial Victorian upbringing where children are seen and not heard. Yep. Um, and so there was a massive part of me that felt I wasn't seen and wasn't, wasn't heard. 
So, and all of a sudden there I was doing something that I loved and I was being recognized for it and I started to get good at it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, finally I was being seen and that was a perpetuating um, drive for me uh, to get better and better and better. Um, and I guess, and, and either through that or just through my, my makeup, I've always, always been fascinated with self-development and being the best I can be. Yeah. Um, and, and that's been my driving force through, throughout my life. Brilliant. So we, we'll, we'll, we'll hop back to you when you get out of school and how you pursued that career. So Carmen, talk to me. So um, on the other side of the globe, in Western <laughs> Supermare, <laughs> uh, which is, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's, uh, it's famous for, it's got the second largest tidal range in the world. Um, so it's got a beach, but it's not quite the beaches that you've got there. <laughs> uh, let's say. Um, so I grew up, uh, two brothers and a sister, two older brothers, um, into, I guess, really a, quite a sporty family. My dad loved his hockey and um, he was a Londoner. My mum, an Irish nurse. Um, so I had kind of that caring, um, my mum work is, works in addiction therapy. Yep. So really at the core front, like um, cold face, I guess, of trauma and human um, experience. Um, so I kind of always grew up knowing that she loved the work that she did. Um, and yet my dad was a music teacher. So as much as he loved sport, he was also music. So I guess the, the combination of those two around kind of um, emotional intelligence um, and sensitivity, um, as well as that kind of like going out and again with the sport kind of going mm. out and being, you know, the best performer you could be on the field. Um, it was quite an eclectic mix, I guess. Um, I, I was also quite a shy girl. Um, I was in kind of the local comprehensive school, you know, um, years later you look back and many of them are dead or in prison or, you know, few actually went on <laughs> to university. So it was, you yeah. know, it was quite something to, to kind of even get a, a good education out of, out of the school at the time. Um, and there were a handful of us who did. Um, yeah. And again, sport for me, <clears throat> I was thinking about it last night, actually, I was compiling a, um, a talk I'm doing later this week. And, and, I was thinking about kind of, you know, how even through through my sport, because almost in the I was a bit of a goody two shoes in in uh, my studies. So I'd literally sit in the front of the class and there would be and I know there were like three of us and there would be kids shouting behind. And again, a bit of bullying kind of shouting names at us because because we were the SWATs. Um, but sport gave me a bit more of a license that people warmed a bit more to me because I also they knew that on the sports pitch they could rely. They, you know, they would like nudge up to me and rely on me to be um to carry them through a game let's say so um i did gymnastics a lot as a young kid um i also did uh hockey well i guess my main sports but tennis mostly ball sports not not of the dancing nature um, yeah she whips my ass on any any ball sport yeah then i get my, my back on the dance floor yeah you're, def you're definitely leading on the dance floor huh? <laughs> <laughs> um and you know as a family I was kind of we were lucky that my elder brother played cricket um and he played cricket for England so he went and played oh, wow. England school boys so he kind of excelled in the family and I guess paved that way really for the rest of us to be able to to also shine on the sports field so both my sister and I um played high level hockey um and again that's kind of all you know I went to university and um, which is where I met um uh, Mr Herdman's wife Sue Lockhart yeah. um I anyway I went to play sport because um, that was the only thing that I knew that I enjoyed. Um, and Loughborough University was, you know, the best sports university at the time. Um, and I got there and um, 
I went to the hockey trials, right? And and I'd I'd played for my county, but I hadn't played international. Mm. So I was almost seen as, you know, uh, I barely could get into the fourth team. Um, because yeah. it was such a high quality um, university. And I thought, God, here I am. I've come to a university to play sport. Um, and, I, and I'm not good enough. It was kind of like the small fish in a big pond, right? Mm. Um, and I kind of stuck at it. And it, and it actually didn't take long. It took a couple of weeks for me to get into the first team. But, you know, there was a real clique around it. But yeah. so I guess, you know, um, I guess the shyness really, I only probably really came out of myself at university. That's where I first started to kind of find my voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and Did then, you find alcohol at the same time? Because that helps in the early days. Yeah. I didn't kiss a boy till I was 17 I didn't have my first vodka orange till my sixth form 17 so you know I was a real swat and a and a sports student so it's, I mean that's the same kind of upbringing as Greg by what I understand yeah yeah, yeah. okay cool yeah yeah um so you know but privileged to you know my parents are very encouraging <laughs> Poor old Greg. <laughs> there, was, there was an opportunity there. I'm sorry, I had to take it. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. So yeah, I guess you know it became my avenue out of a small town almost yeah. as well. You know, and I go back, and I knew I also played. I was also in the. Um, orchestra so I played the cello so uh, you know I, we'd all learned musical instruments and I kind of just remember almost like walking down the high street after a, after a uh, orchestra evening and thinking this is not my place and I knew really young so probably like 15 16 I was like this is not where I'm meant to be in the world there's got to be something more and it's quite something to to know that I think but have no idea what that looks like but a real deep innate like this is I'm not going to be here in two years' time, let alone kind of 20, 30 years' time. So just a, a quick question, just listening to your story there. So the the expectation and the pressure, right? Obviously, you had a brother who's played for England, so the bar's here. Uh, uh, you know, you were good at sport and academic, played in the in the choir, orchestra. Like, what, what Did you have the expectation as a kid to be this perfect package of be good at everything? And was that a pressure that you had on your shoulders that when you went to uni, you were like, you know, I had that relief of moving my moving from my hometown and just being who I am. Or was that not something that you that you sort of hung over your head when you were younger? Yeah, I don't think I fully realised till um, like later on in life. Um, mm. And probably, you know, I, ha- I had an affair when I got married. You'll hear about it later, but I got married and had an affair. Um, and that for me, that's when, when my wheels kind of came off. Right. And, and, and in particular to suddenly be not the perfect girl, yeah. um, the good girl, you know, um, you know, mother, that's, I also think, you know, the father daughter relationship, you know, my dad, not purposely, but like, obviously like held me in quite high regard as the first daughter in the family. Mm. Um, and I felt that. So I think the university allowed me the space to be more me um, and and almost tap into the the more expressive fun side of me. And as you said, the alcohol does help, right? And, and that group and that team camaraderie yeah. kind of helped as well. Because even in, you know, sports team, when you're growing up, everyone's different ages. And then when you suddenly get together with a pack of girls that are all your age, you know, and you're then that's, I was like, oh, this is, it just felt so different for me. I felt like I belonged more. 
And yeah. I kind of looked back and went, I remember going to Christian Union um, and, you know, and trying to do that in my school, right? I, try, I can't believe I did. I tried to set up a Christian Union at school. And, <laughs> you know, it's like prime um, attack kind of take the piss out of Carmen for yeah. sitting there with a Bible. I mean, it's just, you know, but it was almost, I could see it's my sense of trying to belong somewhere yeah. um, and find my crowd. And I struggled to really find that. And, and almost until again, in my like mid thirties, as much as I had it at university in a group of like tomboy girls, um, I, there was this other side of me that wasn't being acknowledged um and i remember walking into the room where i ended up doing psychotherapy for two years and and seeing um all these kind of hippie cushions and um and like the buddha and and all these yeah. artifacts and and part of me felt a bit sick because i felt like i belonged in that space but then it made me weird you know and i and i struggled to really um to own the weirdness yeah um, so I'm I just felt- going to pause you there because I, I really want to get into that later because it's something I know all of us, well, all three of us have had that struggle of finding the new tribe and belonging in a spiritual woo-woo world, right, without being weird. So, so, so Andrew, just putting back to you in terms of, you know, how you pursued your dance passion. So you finished school. What is, I mean, in South Africa in those days, what were your, what were your opportunities? I mean, and, and how did you, how did you address that? Yeah, I guess, you know, uh, my parents did what most parents did and, you know, you're not going to go just go off and get a job. You're going to, you know, do tertiary education and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. And I was like, you know what, I, I don't know what I want to do. You know, I wasn't because I think I was bullied and, and my, my self-confidence was pretty low throughout school. That, that affected my, my um, academic studies. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, you know, I got an A for English and, you know, like, no, it's all right, but, you know, math science <laughs> wasn't exactly the, the brightest button. Um, and then... So I really didn't know what I wanted to do besides dance. Mm. Um, I had a great love, I think, was most South Africans do of, of wildlife and and and, and uh, that kind of thing. So I was thinking about something in conservation. Then I also, you know, wanted to travel. Um, and so I came across this course, which um, was a three-year travel and tourism course. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that was okay. Fine, I'll just be a student, you know, and I'll, I'll, you know, maybe in three years I'll figure out, you know, what it is I want to do because it was quite a diverse course. But then, as with the political situation, this is ninety three, ninety four. Obviously, Nelson Mandela was just coming into power, um, and uh, the country was in quite a quite a state. Yeah. Uh, and the college or the tech that I was at was um, being, you know, firebombed, and you know, the the lecturers were being uh, harassed and and all this kind of stuff. So our lecturers, well, one particular lecturer decided to leave and go to Damland College. And we thought, well, if you're moving, we'll move with you. Yeah. Um, but what it ended up meaning is that I qualified as a travel agent. I did a one-year intensive course as a travel agent. Um, so that's my only, like, you know, college uh, qualification, as it were. Um, and then I, once I'd done that, I was just to my mum my, my and dad. I was like, you know, I'm done. Like, I'm done with South Africa. I need to get out of Peter Marisburg. It's too small for me. Um, and I thought, you know, I want to do some sort of performing arts college or, or something like that. Um, and, you know, it meant I would have had to have either gone to Johannesburg or Cape Town or one of the big centers. Um, but, you know, my dad was born here in the UK. Um, and so uh, I had a British passport. And I was just like, you know, if I'm going to go and pursue performing arts, there's no better place than, than you know, London, where, you know, ballroom dancing is, is massive. So 
Um, I yeah, got a little part-time job, saved up. My parents very kindly uh, paid for my flights, although it ha I had to travel via Zimbabwe, an 18-hour bus journey from Marisburg to Joburg, then a flight to Zim. Then I went from uh, Adelaide, Harare, Harare to Paris, Paris to London. So it took me three days to get door to door. Um, must have really wanted to get here. Yeah, I mean, definitely. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so I arrived here in London with 500 pounds on a week travel card uh, and a week's accommodation at a hostel uh, at the um, age of 20. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was the sort of beginning of my journey to, to following my dreams of being a dancer. That's awesome. So just, just before I want to hop back to common, what you studied at uni. So, so what year did you finish the trick? I need to find that out. This Oh, shit. You might, well, I'm 92, but I was a year young for my year. So we all this, oh, you're 75 child. 76. Oh, damn it. <laughs> this vintage is older. Yeah. I was 92. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If I had hair, it would be gray, but no, I don't. Um, cool. And and in terms of, you know, just before you pursued that and, and while you were at Daimlin, um, did you do any dance? Was it just sort of a, were you, were you kind of filling your cup up doing that or was it just this burning? Um, I think, yeah, I think the year I was at Daimlin or maybe just before I, I was kind of coming out of the competitive scene. I competed in, in South Africa uh, with um, a couple of partners and, um, yeah. I think towards that edge, I was also going through a little bit of my university days. Um, so my dancing was primarily at the clubs uh, where I danced bloody match all night. You know, I wasn't a big, I mean, I have, you know, a few probably rum and cokes or whatever, but generally I'd be drinking water because I'll just be busting, you know, my, my butt on the dance floor like all night until um, my feet were almost bleeding. And then, you know, I'd walk home. But um, so, yeah, that, those are my dancing days in that, in that time just before I left for, for England. And competitively, did you have success in those early days in South Africa? Um, I can't, can't remember. I think, you know, in Natal, I was probably, I don't know, probably in the top 10 in Natal. Yeah. Um, you know, I was at a very good school where um, two, two of the girls were South African champions. Um, it's interesting how the demographics of dance in, in South Africa work. So in sort of Johannesburg, Pretoria, the Latin dancers are particularly strong because they're good Latin uh, instructors there. And then in the Cape, you know, they're very good with the ballroom. So, you know, the waltzes, the tango, yeah. the quick step, all that kind of because they've got those kind of coaches down there. And then in Intel, we're a little bit like the mix between the two, right? Um, but uh, no, I had, I had great teachers and, you know, and I guess I was inspired to come to England because of all the international um, foreign um, couples that used to come out and perform. And I was actually... It, it was the show performances that inspired me the most, mm. not watching people compete. I, I was never really a competitor. I was more an artist. I wanted to go on and express myself through movement yeah. and through music. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and particularly one big guy, um, Australian guy, actually, uh, uh, Jason Gilkinson, who's now one of the top choreographers on Dancing with the Stars and Strictly Come Dancing. Um, he came out and he was a big guy, right? And, and Again, it was like, oh, wow, big guys can dance, right? You know, and uh, so it was these guys who really inspired me, you know, to, to kind of do it. So. And growing up in South Africa, big guys just jump up and down if you get them on the dance floor, right? Brilliant. So, Carmen, so what did you choose to study? I mean, obviously, I know you went through the sport intention, you found your tribe. What did you, you know, being the perfect child, what did you choose to study um, in those early stages? What was the yeah, I can see the halo; it's glowing. Right? I, I thought it was. A, I thought it was. A, I need a bit of polishing yeah, now. It's worn off. It's worn off. What did I you did, choose to study, and where were your early thoughts of what are you going to do, do with yourself from a career perspective? 
almost when I got there, I didn't really, all I knew is I enjoyed sport. So, mm. and again, I followed my elder brother, Perry. So he, I remember going up to see him at the university and, you know, couldn't believe the the vibe on the campus. We watched Della Mitri in the, in the student union um, and just all, everyone was in purple tracksuits, right? It's um, synonymous with the university. So you walk around and this, <laughs> you feel like you're in a movie, you know? It's, everyone, it's called African Violet. So AVs. African Violet. Yeah, that's like calling pink salmon, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm laughing because purple's my son's favorite color. And he always tells me it's LeBron James's favorite color. And it's, uh, who else's favorite color is it? Oh, there's a couple of, couple of uh, Justin Bieber's favorite color is purple. But anyway, yeah. I'm a believer. Don't ask me why, but carry on. Well, it was a big color yesterday in the inauguration. <laughs> I didn't watch it. I don't do TV. We've discussed this. Uh, yeah. uh, anyway, sorry, back to the purple tracksuits. Track suit. So just a bit, you know, blown away by um, lots of jocks running around the university. You had hockey over there and sport yeah. and you know, um, rugby over there. So anyway, I was like, I've got to come here. So I kind of worked hard to get my grades. Um, and, and I guess um, it was, I don't remember almost thinking it was about playing hockey but it was kind of, that was my, was my way in. And I guess back in those days, there wasn't really much to do with sports science. You kind of, you either worked in the leisure center um, and I'd already done a work experience in that and knew I hated it. Yeah. Um, or, you know, there was nothing uh, that anyone, we weren't really, didn't have sports psychologists in those days. You know, a lot of people actually I studied with have kind of went on and did like some of those pioneering roles, you know, either working with like, um, uh, um, Andy Murray in the tennis, you know, in the biomechanics side. Yeah. So um, I also knew I wasn't a huge, strong scientist. So when, when it came down to, I think I got 19% in my stats exam, um, you know, in the um, biomechanics wasn't my strength. So I kind of was, a, as with sport, a bit of an all-rounder um, rather than necessarily excelling at something. So after three years of generally playing sport and, you know, and getting a degree, I then stayed on to do my teacher training. So for a very short window, there was a consideration that I might want to be a PE teacher. Um, and as much as I love kids and always thought it would be a great thing if I had a family to, mm. to you know, what a great job to have. Um, but I did my training um, and I remember going for my first interview and I was like, in fact, I had to teach dance at my first interview. <laughs> and I'd never really, I think we'd had one dance lesson at uni. <laughs> um, and that was it. And I was like, no. Was it, was it the old fingers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Side, side, and side. <laughs> I'm finally finding my dance feet at 46 years old. Oh, classic. Uh, so then what happened after that? Uh, so I then came to London. Um, my other brother was living here, so I went and slept on his floor. I, in fact, I did a few months back in the West Country, just, you know, doing kind of the, you come out of university and you're working for data entry for an insurance business. Um, came to the bright uh, lights of London um, and temped for a while, actually. Did lots of different jobs, working around different media companies I mean I was like the girl from the country where I remember working for like a PR agency and they were like you need to go and hail a cab and I'm like what, what do you mean how do I get a cab and they were like just stand so, out and like thumb a cab I'm so glad you struggled with that as well. I thought all English people knew how to do that yeah you know, my who do not know how to hail a cab uh, public transport threw me off like what's this thing yeah <laughs> um and you know so enjoyed luckily a few of the hockey girls had come at the same time so we all then moved into the house together including sue um and um so it, i just in, i enjoyed the vibe of the city i guess um and i eventually found a job with a sports um sports charity 
So at the time, it was before there was any kind of um, in, like government funding for athletes. Mm -hmm. um, so again, like all the Olympic, all the Olympians in the country had, you know, had to raise their own money, um, and we used to do that for them. So we were a charity. So I worked with them for five years, and I guess that was my, um, you know, it was quite novel to do that um, yeah. coming from with a sports degree. So um, I did a lot of fundraising and a lot of representation of the athletes. So we would get corporate grants from the likes of Barclay Card. Um, and then fund the athletes to go to, in fact, Sydney Olympics was uh, one of the big projects I worked on. So, you know, I went out to Sydney and and it was amazing to be out there with a lot of athletes that you'd worked with over the last couple of years and help them with like their media training and yeah. um, not so much obviously on the uh, actual um, coaching side, but more on the other stuff around that. Um, and 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 just enjoyed i did enjoy the sports industry you know i enjoyed being around people who are at the top of their game but i for me i almost remember the moment of, it's called the pc right it's the hockey pitch at loughborough um and they used to joke because everyone was international i was the only county player yeah. um and there's a real we used to win everything right it was the top university we'd we'd beat all the other universities and we played national league so we played it to a high level um but it, i never had the same passion as others did you know some people would come down and be training on a wednesday and thursday and i'd see them down there on the pitch practicing and i just didn't it didn't it wasn't that for me yeah um i enjoyed being part of the team and the experience but i didn't love the game i didn't study the game i just enjoyed you know the role I played in it so I kind of knew you know I played hockey then in London for a few years after again just for the um, social aspect and for meeting people so sports always an amazing way into a new city right yeah. um, to land feet somewhere and then just go and find a sports club and suddenly you know a load of people um, so yeah that was kind of that was 25 years ago that I arrived in London crazy so you arrived in london from the dock continent at 20 with 500 pounds which was probably about 10,000 rent in those days i guess um and, and a week's travel card which was probably a month's salary but um how did that go yeah it was pretty scary to start <laughs> off with um all right you know so yeah after three days of travel i arrived with my all my worldly belongings on my back at victoria station with my little A to Z, uh, you know, guide. Yeah, and you bought uh, the small one because they were the cheapest and then you couldn't find yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, you know, weight was an issue, right? You know, in every sense. Um, so there I am sitting on the stairs in Victoria Station going, oh my God. Like, this is the biggest building I think I've ever seen in my life and it's just a train station. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, which, where, which left, where, you know, what, oh, yeah, I was just absolutely blown away. Uh, anyway, kind of gathered my, my loins as it were and, uh, and ventured out, eventually found my hostel, uh, which is, you know, one of these six story, you know, town, like whatever they, what are they called? Townhouses. Townhouses, I guess, in, in Victoria. Um, and this is like nine o'clock in the morning. I haven't slept probably properly for about four days. Um, get in there and I can't find my paperwork, you know, for my booking. And I, I'm like, literally, I'm, I'm losing my shit. I'm about to cry. I feel like I just want to go home. Anyway, eventually get my, get my stuff, go all the way up to the top floor, walk into the room and there's a whole bunch of guys sleeping in bunk beds. And here I've got to just put my stuff down. And, you know, anyway, I thought, you know what? I'm so tired. I'm just going to lie here and, you know, 
And I just sat, remember sitting on the bed um, and a beautiful sunny day, like a little bit like this, you know, cold uh, October day, um, sun was shining, but then there's just this roar of London, you know, with the traffic and, you know, just a sound I'd never heard before. You know, I'd never traveled outside of South Africa, you know, as a, as a, you know, as a kid. Never been, I think I've been on a pl plane once before leaving South Africa, you know, so it's super bush baby. Um, and yeah, so I fell asleep and then I woke up and, uh, and I just thought, well, you know what, I've got a travel card, I'm gonna go and use it. So I just basically surfed the tube. I uh, put my passport in my back pocket and I just surfed the tube and I kept coming up going, oh, nice building, I don't know what that is, but anyway, and, and just kind of explored for a few days. And then I thought, okay, I probably should start looking for some sort of work because my money's not gonna last. Yeah. I was living on like baked beans and biscuits and oh God, what knows. As you do. Um, <laughs> and uh, I got my first job ever in London was uh, pulling pints at Wembley Stadium for a Pearl Jam concert. Oh. Um, and uh, what these are pre-mobile phone days, um, pre-bank card. I don't think I had a bank card. Anyway, so basically I went along, did my shift, and uh, obviously the concert finished at probably about 10, 30, 11. By the time we cleaned up and everything, I was like 11, 30, jumped on the tube. Um, and off I went back to Victoria, not knowing that, you know, the tubes in those days shut at 12. And the next minute I hear, this train terminates here. I'm like, yeah, the same Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> like no phone, no money, oh. no clue. Uh, there I was stuck in the middle of West, out of the West London, you know, and I needed to get back into the center. So basically I landed at walking all the way back to, to Victoria. I think I got back at about four in the morning. Um, but then first 15, 20 minutes, I was like, shit, like panicking. And then I was like, dude, you're in London. Like yeah. no one's waiting home for you. No one cares. Just enjoy it, you know? And so I just kind of took the, you know, and also feeling quite safe, you know? Mm -hmm. um, just walked along, you know, the, the leafy street streets of West London, you know, probably coming through, I don't know where it would have been, maybe even Richmond or Cheswick <laughs> or, you yeah. know, all these posh bases and, and just asking people as I went, probably night crawlers, you know, people out from parties. Um, and yeah, eventually got home. And so, I mean, that was just one of my little mini adventures. But yeah, very much a bush baby, you know, uh, in a big city. Um, and then I guess um, I then started linking with the dance world, the people that I knew here from South Africa, the South, South African boys had come over and, and were dancers here. Um, and I moved to uh, South London, uh, to Norbury near, near Streatham, yeah. uh, or we in Streatham, because we didn't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, and I got a room in an attic for a hundred pound a month which literally was no bigger than a double bed. You couldn't even sit up in bed because you, you hit your head on the roof. Um, and yeah, and that was sort of my beginning into, you know, living in London and uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I shared a council flat in Putney with four of my rugby mates. So we, yeah, I, I hear you, right? It's like the roughest, the rough, but we didn't care. Did not care, man. Um, so, so, so how quickly did the, you know, breaking through to become a professional dancer, was it? The, the, that was that a tough transition or how, how did you you know obviously having people there that you knew is a great from a network perspective but did you battle did you get lucky or, or what happened from that opportunity where you actually started to to make money out of dancing yeah no uh it was a long 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 haul to, to the point where we we're making money um so this is so i came out in 96 um i was I, you know so i came out in october 96 by uh january to uh um, 97, um, I kind of just did the odd jobs or whatever. And then in January 97 or maybe even February, uh, um, I walked into a dance studio uh, very, very timidly 
and I was I was sitting there and um, watching a, a dance lesson, and there was this very tough woman who was grilling this couple, right? And I was sitting there like I don't know this you know, it's a little kid with a big grin on my face. Anyway, so she comes over. I didn't know who she was at this point, and she goes, "What are you laughing at?" Oh, actually, yeah. What are you laughing at? And I was like, "Uh, nothing. I was just, I was just smiling." And then she said, "Where are you from?" And I said, "Oh, South Africa." She said, "Oh, if you bloody told me, I would have made you a cup of tea." And this woman is a woman called Bobby Irvin, yeah. who was at that time like seven times world champion. Oh no way! An elderly lady, you know, yeah. she was one of the pioneers of ballroom dancing, but she was actually a South African who married a, a Scotsman, um, Bill Irvin. Um, and together they they were they were the king of ballroom back in the day but anyway so i met her and then um the one of my mates teachers got to like oh you're looking for a partner i think i might have a girl for you got on the phone and the next week i had a dance partner um the problem was i didn't really have much income and ballroom dancing is quite expensive so we kind of we kind of got stuck into that and um all my all my wages and everything went on my lessons and, and the practices and stuff. So yeah, so many, I, I sort of pause you there. Where, where is it for the uninformed? Is that just because of costumes or is it is it is it the the train that's cost so much? Or where, where does it catch you from an investment perspective? Um well back in those days, probably before we even started competing, I mean it's you know, your lessons, you're you're having lessons from world champions. Yeah. You know, it's not like you join a there are two, sort of two levels of, of dancing that you can do. One is you kind of your social level where you go to a social class, you know, you're, it's just purely for the fun of it. Uh, and you're taught by, a, you know, good teachers, but they're probably not world ex world champions. Um, and you kind of have a club environment. Um, and, and, and in Europe, this is kind of more the case where you can then grow up and grow up through this club system and, and it, you can get quite a high level. In England, it works slightly different. It's segregated. So um, here you are either part of a social club or you kind of you you have your coaches, but like the tennis world. Right. You'll have your ex world champions and, and they train you um, and they don't come cheap. Um, I can't remember what I was paying back then. Probably, I don't know, 30, 40 pound for an hour. That's you know, good money, man. Because yeah, I remember yeah. as a as a as a tech consultant, I was on thirty five an hour, and I was living the life. Right? It was that was that was a lot of money in those days. Yeah, yeah. So I was probably yeah, no, it was it was way more. So we'd only have like an hour a week, you know, or yeah. maybe two hours all we could afford between the two of us. Because obviously, you know, you'd share it with your partner. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, but nowadays, I mean, you're looking anywhere 100, 150 pounds for an hour, and that and that's that's kind of average, right? um so um and then obviously yeah in practice you got to pay for practice every time you go to you know a, a studio and you've got to you know pay for that uh, obviously you know your dancing shoes you practice where you know that doesn't really matter you can dance much anything but obviously when you start competing then that's, that's all coutured you know made yeah. to fit clothes um you know the travel the entry fees the flights the hotels the you know yeah, it, it, it just adds up very quickly. So anyway, so yeah, um, I, uh, well, where do I start? So yeah, basically worked nine to five um, at this retail business um, and then danced from probably seven till 11 um, in most weekdays and then uh, on the weekends as well. So most days were like, you know, 16, 18 hour days um, and did that um, until... Um, yeah, for for years and probably till 2000. And I had a little oasis, a little break in the middle where it kind of all went bang. And I went off and I danced with an Oxford student in Oxford um, and lived again another sort of 
raucous, raucous, yeah, uh, student life, getting getting drunk every night. I worked in a pub and stuff. And um, but then I kind of got fat, and I was just like, you know, I didn't give up my family, I didn't orphan myself to come and be some drunk bar manager. Yeah. You know, I'm I came here to be a dancer, and, and that's what I need to do. So you know, I kicked myself back in the bum and went back to London and got back into gear. Um, and then um, so can I just pause you there, so if you don't mind, I just I just want to just want to. You just you know pulling back to Carmen's story after five years working with the charity. I'm, I'm assuming you similar ages at the time. Now, as we sit here today, spiritual human beings, done the work, know there's bigger purpose, all that stuff. At this phase in your life, I know Carmen, you mentioned that 15, 16, you knew something was different, you wanted to do something else. Where were you at that time from a spiritual level? Like where were you from a, an awoken enlightenment stage? Was it even on your radar in those days, or were you just sort of head down, ass up, just trying to make make it in this world um you know if you can reflect back before we kind of go on to the rest of your journey i just want to pause there yeah. i think for me that um i guess my i almost feel like my body knew something right hence the mm. not feeling like you're fitting in looking for the christianity that not quite resonating for me i didn't like this whole new, whole idea that um i was a bad person if i'd sinned i couldn't quite get my head around that um and uh, but I think almost then parking it a bit. So I think the university gave a, um, I guess, a, a place for another part of me to be expressed and explored. Mm. Um, so it was almost like, okay, we'll put that to the side and maybe we'll come back to it. Um, and and I did have, you know, I look back and I go, I did have a lot of fun. You know, I enjoyed the sport. I enjoyed the going out. I enjoyed the coming to a new city and you know, I had um, a lot of opportunity in all of that to go to like the European Championships um, for football and then to the Olympics. And so I was kind of, um, I was experiencing life um, in a different way. Um, and so life, there was no, almost no need to to go looking anywhere else. Mm. Um, but there's, but there was something underneath it that just felt like a little bit of a hole that wasn't filled. You know, so I'd kind of, particularly after that, then I worked to work, went to work in banking and I did yeah. 10 years in the bank. Um, and people would joke and go, you're a bit of a, you know, square peg in a round hole. And I just felt like that there. I thought this isn't the answer either, but I've got no idea where it is. Um, and, and spirituality hadn't even, you know, it wasn't talked about. I didn't see yeah. it anywhere. So there was nowhere to go, right, to even to start asking questions about what is life and and I you know I remember it starting to come up when just before I got married in 30 when I was 33 I guess mm. I remember saying to my husband don't you wonder what life's about and he was like are you going to seriously ask me that question like just before we get married <laughs> and it kind of I kept getting shut down whenever I would look to explore I felt mm. others would shut me down and and I'd shut myself down um, and I just didn't have a role model or anyone to, to go and listen to, you know, no such things as like podcasts or even I wasn't necessarily drawn to the books. And, and actually I was running about it yesterday. One of the first books I picked up would have, it would have been like 20, um, 2010, um, it's called fuck it. Um, and so it's kind of a self-help book, but, yeah. it's, but it's very much, you know, very much says like, if you're not living the life you want to live, then like, just, you know give it up and take another path um so from that book i literally went back into barclays and resigned that day that's amazing um, but, 
Do you, do you, I mean, just just because I mean, I'm sure Andrew's you know mentioned the conservative South, Af- South African upbringing, pretty similar to the UK, or right? pretty straight down the line. That just looking back in reflection, it was just I think a lot of us got married and did what we did and went to uni to buy the house and the white picket fence and the dog and the just because that's what everyone did, and and it was so rare in an information age, especially growing up in apartheid, right, where we didn't grow up with any information except what we were meant to see or we were told to see, whereas now people have the information, have the freedom. I mean, obviously, the internet can be bad because it's not all real, but they have this, like, the lens to see things from different angles, whereas for us, it was, and I know it was just following a path, but you, you knew there was something else, but you didn't know what it was because everyone else around you, it's like the salmon, right? Everyone else is going up and you're like, well, I should actually want to go down, but that that's just weird because there wasn't the, oh, let me Google this or let me listen to someone else. So do you think that had a lot to do with it as well? Yeah, yeah, just nowhere to go. And so it, it added almost to the point where you kind of go, what's wrong with you? Why, why <laughs> so, you so much to the side. <laughs> yeah, why are you not content with what you have? You know, I used to look at it and think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I married a very kind man. Um, he was a tennis player, so I had quite a good life. So, you know, I played sport. I was doing what I deemed to love. I seemed to be fun. And so people from the outside would go almost like, what you know, what is it about you that you think the grass is greener or, you know, why are you not happy? And I even remember one point like... um, uh, going to meet a friend of mine and my ex at the time was like can can you do something about her because she's like she's annoying me because she's she's just like a low level it's kind of like just a low level buzz right I don't know, like it's not a depression but it's just kind of like there's just um a, a lack of fulfillment and yeah. nothing else would fill it you know everything I was like I have everything and yet I still feel incomplete, incomplete. You know, and that and that that was it, and 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 I almost and I had no one to really talk to, so it would play mm. out in a different way, right? It played out in the affairs, it played out in um, me sabotaging almost me. Yeah. So I kind of almost put it on. It was something wrong with me. It was quite hard to you know to navigate that. I mean, it's, it as as cold as it sounds, you're a marketer's dream, right? got a successful life money more stuff stuff will fix that right you know there's something's going to fix it whether it's the car or or the you know the extramarital like something's going to fix it um but it's yeah. i guess it's that inner work until we realize that it's you know at the time it's the confusion and i think if you if you don't have necessarily a belief system right if you've walked away from the church or mm. you know and i always think um almost those who'd gone through let's say addiction you know the fellowships of of, of addiction give that structure for people yeah um, and help you look at um a higher power um and so i didn't have that that uh, belief system to hold on to either yeah um you know, so, and what I'd gone to didn't quite resonate with me. So I was like, okay, well, where else is there? Um, so, yeah. And I actually found there was an organization called, they are in Australia as well, Landmark. Um, and a friend said, just said, to, do you know it? <laughs> no, it's the universe, right? I was actually chatting to one of my wildfire clients uh, about my coaching business. He's like, oh, you got to check out Landmark. Literally like right. 45 minutes before this call. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, but, but, and a friend of mine, Rach, Rach said, you just, and this is how landmark works it's like uh, you just need to go yeah like you know and and that was it and and most of my life has been like that people just going just trust go do it yeah. and you're like right okay off i go um so just you know. swimming 
Yeah. And I'd kind of, you know, got married, I'd got divorced, I'd gone yeah. traveling around the world for a year um, and, you know, still not found it. And then, and, and I think Landmark got me um, truthful. Yeah. Um, so they, they, their program is very much around kind of um, stripping you back uh, and it's a little bit painful, right? So for me, it was, I, le- I literally ended up on stage um, and told my story. Um, and part of it was I hadn't told my husband's ex-husband that I'd had an affair. And the guy just went, you need to tell him tonight. And I was like, <gasps> I can't do that. I can't do that. And this is like two, three years after, right? Um, yeah. And so I came, I was came home. Uh, I was with a friend of mine, Joel, and it was like the worst. I was trying to get hold of uh, my ex and he he didn't really want to see me. And I'm like, no, no, but I need to see you. <laughs> I need to talk to you. Um, and it was, you know, it was one of the worst phone calls of my life to have to, to for many reasons, right, to hurt him again, yeah. but then also to really own my truth of my own behaviour. Yeah. Um, and and I'd been really like lying to myself and I'd broken what I believed were my values and my morals. So hence that. And it took me probably another five years to stop kind of, you know, uh, what's the word? Flagellating. Flagellating myself. Yeah. You know, it took a long time to forgive my behavior. And it was only when someone said to me kind of, well, you know, almost like you were the goody two shoes, right? Of course you were going to at some point rebel against it. Yeah. Um, once I understood actually what really went on, it wasn't, you know, it was my own cry for help, right? Um, Brilliant. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that, man. Um, we'll, we'll get back to how that journey evolved from a spirituality and self-awareness. And, um, Andrew, you going back to London after living the pub Oxford life, um, yeah. was, was that the calling or, or where, where were you at a spirituality point of view? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, making a wild assumption here, but being in the creative field, people are generally more open-minded than the corporate bankers or was it locked like, or was that a, just a misconception? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I never really did corporate. I mean, I did a bit of retail, um, but I wasn't, you know, no way near sort of commons. Um, no, I mean, I mean, sorry, commons world compared to your world, like the corporate compared yeah, to yeah. No, I think my, my spiritual journey is a little bit different mm. in the sense that um, I grew up in a very unorthodox, unusual uh, Christian religion uh, as a child where I was probably the only one in, if not in my school, in my town, um, who thought the way I did about uh, life <laughs> in a spiritual sense. <clears throat> um, and I've actually just literally this last weekend did a big kind of like purge on Facebook about my journey of dealing with my beliefs, my spiritual beliefs, because yeah. it was only till I got to about the age of 30 after being married and divorced that I re- like, I realized that I needed to open up about my, my beliefs um, yeah. because I had been felt that I, I couldn't share my, my religious or my spiritual beliefs um, before that, because they were so radical and so, so different. Um, but now I don't feel like that weird anymore because everyone starts with people are starting to think the same way. Right. And are you, are you um, open to share what those were? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, the religion was called Christian Science, yeah, um, which is not Scientology, just because it kind of gets some um, confused with that. Um, and, and you know, like m- many religions, and and you know, I find it interesting how the word we use of culture has the word cult in it. You know, we all belong to some form of cult, whether it's your sports team, whether it's your your family, you know. So, um, in in an essence, it was cult like. 
in, in the fact that it had very, very strict rules, it was quite um, uh, radical. Um, but, but, you know, with like any religion, you can take it to the radical ex extremist point, or you can kind of take it um, sort of the middle road. Um, but, you know, it was what we, what I would call a metaphysical um, uh, 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 religion, I guess, mm -hmm. in the sense that they um, was a healing religion. Um, and that was the basis of, for it. So basically, in, in brief, Christian science, I haven't really thought about this for a while, but um, uh, it has a founder, uh, someone basically who uh, obviously was a channel or some sort of, you know, had a download, a spiritual download after almost killing herself on the ice. I and mean, this is going back into the early 1800s. Um, and she, she kind of um, wrote this book called uh, Science and Health key to the scriptures um or something like that i can't remember what it's called now uh but it was like a, her translation of the bible yeah um and so in a christian science church you do not have uh ministers or priests or anything like that you just have readers so you have two readers uh one who'll read from the bible and one who'll read from the, the from science and health um and basically they talk about all the metaphysical aspects of spirituality or of god yeah. um and you know they sort of you know, the things like talking about, you know, death is not real and, um, and, 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 they, and they don't believe in taking medicine and um, uh, there's, you know, it's all about sort of mind over matter stuff. Um, and, you know, it's kind of early, early, early doors, you know, positive thinking kind of thing, you know, or sort of um, Joe Dispenza type stuff. Um, so, but, you know, <laughs> like any religion it gets corrupted and it gets kind of taken out of out of context and also extreme uh, uh radicalized so there were uh people within our community who were very radical about it you know they didn't take their kids to the hospital uh they didn't take any medication um and all that kind of stuff so it was not something that you talked about a lot uh, my family fortunately were quite sort of middle of the way you know um we, we you know we had a headache we took a my you know we took an aspirin or you know I, um you know, no, no. you know yeah if you break your your leg you know we'd take you to the hospital all that kind of stuff um you know but we were my, my parents didn't drink at all i wasn't really around alcohol at all until i left home um and so but i think the the underlying thing for me was a grounded belief that there was a higher a benevolent higher power that was looking after you and you could call on on it however you want whatever religion you go that is the ultimate you know that is the threat right and i and i saw that was really quite grounded in me that no matter where i was what i was doing i could turn to prayer or to to ask for help or, to, or even just to know that there is a higher power and a higher, higher infinite intelligence looking after me or everything um and i guess maybe that was my rock that was my my crutch you know when i came out here on my own just knowing that you know everything would be okay you know um if i just you know kind of had faith and and you know um i guess i don't know did the right the right thing i guess i'd be okay right um so that was the kind of my upbringing but even my mom left um the religion uh when i was in probably about 15 or 16 because of the very strict um you know we weren't allowed to read any other books that weren't um you know accredited or, or validated by the church um you know there was lots of uh 
dogmatic nature like you know like other religions and so my mum walked away and and um i think just before my matric year she bought me my first self-development book which was um the road less traveled by m scott peck um and i remember just soaking that book up like it was the best thing i'd ever read um and ever since then i've I've probably only read self-development books and biographies and that kind of stuff um and i guess this is where kind of carmen and i are very similar and we've both lived a lot you know, we both walked the road less traveled, you know. Um, and uh, so that was the kind of beginning. And then the, in the dancing world, I mean, in a sense, they're a little bit more open to emotions and, and, and being more vulnerable and sensitive. And um, but but it's also very ego driven. It's, it's, it's not, you know, uh, and it's about the, who am I, the, 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 the titles and the positions and the power and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and obviously in a very competitive environment, that becomes incredibly important. So um, although, you know, the dancing become my identity was who I was, it was also another crutch. You know, I, I, again, also, I didn't know who really I, who, who I was really, you know, I'd become my titles. I'd become the, the big, the dancer, the whatever, you know, yeah. and um, it was, it was, it was through my life experiences of going through my, my divorce. My wife did what Carmen did uh, and left me five months after getting married. And that, so that was when the wheels of my life came off and I, and I really had to start waking up and realize, you know, smelling the roses as it were. So from a religious perspective, once again, if you, you know, I know you said you had a rant, don't share if you don't want to, I'm just inquisitive, but you, you, at what stage did you walk away from the church and, and how did that, or, or if you did or didn't, I mean, and, and did you have that internal dialogue or that wrestle or, or how, how was that perceived within the community or your, you know, where you grew up? Um, well, I guess so. I'd been here 10 years and within those 10 years, you know, I think there's much to be said about, you know, having the freedom to be a child, being the freedom to be a teenager, you know, living life to the full, drinking, you know, really tasting all of life. I don't think it is almost healthy. I don't know. I'm just brain dumping here yeah. to kind of be the sort of, you know, the religious good thing, you know, you only read about, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to absorb or experience life. I think that's part of being human is to, to go out there and, you know, live life to the full. Right. And then when, when you start to hit your 30s and your 40s, that's the time to mature, to kind of ask the bigger question. And then you have the perspective of life rather than if you sit, you know, with your, you know, your, I don't know, I'm, I'm struggling with words here, but, you know, a limited sort of experience of the world and, uh, and, and holding back and being all pure and, and innocent it just makes for a very uh, sterile and, and um, narrow experience later on in life so um i've kind of forgotten your question but um yeah i was just when, when you decided to like consciously make the cut from the church if you did like was it a conscious decision or was it just an evolution of you know you slowly pulled back till it didn't become you know the leading force in your life i i guess it was because other things came filled the filled up you know my life became really busy i was traveling around the world you know competing i, I didn't have time to think about god yeah. to religion you know i was i was you know living a, a full teenage or young adult life um and i mean I, it was always in the background i always had my you know my sort of my uh, spiritual texts and scriptures that i could read if i felt low or or that kind of stuff i, I did have resources um my mom would always send me various bits and pieces that she was like she was like 
you know, this hungry wolf that was finding all these awesome metaphysical, spiritual, new, you know, things of meditation and, you know, I can't remember, you know, all these different paths. And, and so she was just pumping it all to me, you know, like, check this out, check this out. Um, so I, I kind of had that in the background, but at the, at the same time, yeah, mom, I'm really busy. You know, I've got parties to go to. I've got, <laughs> you, know, you know, girls to meet and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, but then I think, um, uh, well, the, 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 my mom then died. Uh, she died of cancer and I got very angry with, with life and with God. And I kind of denounced everything that I believed. And I thought, you know, cause my mom was quite high up in the church, you know, she was, Although she wasn't, she was no saint, you know, she also lived life to the full, but she was incredibly devout to her faith uh, and to serving, uh, you know, her, her community, her family. And, you know, she was a real believer. Um, and, you know, I just thought, well, you know, if, if she's, if she's going to kind of um, go down this road, then I, then I don't know what, what hope is there for me kind of thing. Um, and so I got really angry and I kind of, that was, that was my kind of denouncing it. And then just before I got married, um, I had this really deep, want or desire to get back into my spiritual practice you know into the meditation into digging deeper asking the deeper questions and then ironically six months later you know life had turned right upside down and 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 therefore i was like yeah right i'm back in it you know because i had nothing else you know it was the dark night of the soul uh and um so it was my that was my in back into spirituality again and that's, a, a, I guess, a good way to put it back to you, Carmen. We all, none of us walked down the aisle planning to get divorced, but we do. Um, <laughs> the dark sand, the soul, I, um, for me, I call that the pain cave, right? Unless, you, unless you've been there and understood it and, you know, have all the feelings from failure to guilt to shame to all the different things you feel with when the white picket fence comes tumbling down. Um, Carmen, you know, you, you mentioned landmark. Obviously, I'm assuming when you, when you told your ex that led to your divorce, in those early days, I mean, we, they're brutal, right? Where, where I mean, I, I know probably know where you were mentally, but what did you do in the early days to start your journey or to A, heal yourself and then expand your consciousness to sort of enlightenment? How did you start, you know, I guess, healing yourself? Yeah. Um, I mean, again, mine was quite quick, right? So I we got married in August and then by May. So, yeah, I'd had an affair and, and, and I guess... Um, you know the guy the guy I had an affair with we had just more of a connection and it was kind of like and I was like god this isn't this isn't how it's meant to be um so I took myself off to counseling um and then just and I guess that you know hence probably why I'm now a therapist but that that initial those sessions I did just to she would just say stuff to me that I would you know she you know is this how you expected to feel married and I was like not at all and it would just suddenly I started asking, I had permission to ask myself questions. Um, and, and, and I find it quite phenomenal that the emotions were all still there. Um, and they'd been there, we'd been together like 10 years. So it wasn't like just a, you know, a, a new relationship. Mm. Um, but even in all that, you know, why, why had it taken 10 years to get married? I think probably underneath it, I mean, I can't really say for him, but for certainly for me, when I look back, it was like my own resistance to it anyway, you know, the time delay to get there. Um, and then, I, and once I'd admitted to myself, you know, my mum used to say to me, lie in bed at night and tell yourself the truth. Um, and I remember lying there and just oh, saying, that's scary yeah. sometimes. <laughs> well, often it's when your best ideas are, you think, right? And you think there's all, it's a different reality. I'm sure it is. <laughs> right? You know, and I remember lying in bed going, I don't want to be with him. 
Mm. And then I was like, and now what? I mean, that just, as soon as even I said those words, I was like, and now what? That's huge. Um, so it, it actually spiraled quite quickly. Um, I, uh, I was like, right, where, do, where can I go? And I ran. So I, you know, I messaged a friend in New Zealand and a friend in the States and said, look, I, I need to come and visit. And the one in the States came back quicker. Um, and actually, even that day, I went to um, St. Paul's Cathedral. Mm-hmm. So, and I'd never, you know, I've been in London like 15 years at that point. And that day, somehow, I just found myself at the cathedral um so back to you know interestingly enough back to kind of you know a a place of religious um uh presence right so and i remember sitting there and just and having a feeling of like whatever you decide you will be okay Mm -hmm. it will be okay and i and i in that just went okay you've just got to follow your heart so i you know within a week i was on a plane um and again my mum, who's obviously full of lots of wise words was like the emotions will still be there when you get back the moment you fly into the airport they'll all resurface you're just Uh, running and i'm like yes i'm very happy running off i go i need my space (laughs) so um alcohol is going to make this better i promise you um and again i think the whole exploration of life you know so i hadn't traveled all that much um and i so i bought around the world ticket and off around the world i went for a year um, so I, you know, I went to South America, um, New Zealand, Australia, um, Bali and Singapore and then North America. Um, I had an incredible year. Um, and, you know, I remember like lying in, uh, going to see this friend in Portland who was working for Nike at the time and being in the swimming pool, Nike, I mean, I've got this incredible sports, it's a bit like going back to university again, sports. Um, yeah, I've, I've been there. It's crazy. That campus is yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. I, was, I could live here. Yeah, um, no, it, it was eye candy for me. And I was there just before the Olympics. So all the Olympic stars were there. And I was like, oh, my mate was like, you can't take pictures. And I'm like, oh, just crazy. <laughs> it was like sport belly heaven. Yeah. yeah. And I remember she was working and she just went, go and do whatever you want. Go and have fun for the day. So I was lying in the pool and I had this wave of like sense of freedom. Mm. that I, I could and it wasn't through him at all but I'd pris- imprisoned myself in in uh in life I guess and I just remember lying there thinking wow I can I can create whatever I want to create I can go wherever I want to go I can do whatever I want and I don't have to ask anyone for permission here yeah. I can just hide myself and off I go um so off I went you know and just yeah had an incredible year just again meeting different people along the route and getting a different perspective on the world um you know and I still think that's you know hugely important and we you know we both love travel and I just think you know going out and meeting different cultures and seeing how different people experience life is is um is so nourishing for uh, for our hearts and souls um and then as I came back um I can never remember quite the the chronological order but um I, I guess I kept using adventure a bit for for my still a bit of my runaway but at the same time I think in all those adventures I would still find out more about me but very mm. much the you know I sailed from Australia to China um, on a clip around the world race and and on that boat you know you, you've got hours and hours and hours of staring at out at sea you know so talk about meditation and on steroids you're just staring thinking you know what what's all this about and what do I want when I get off here and how can I be in the silence and the quietness without having to run anywhere um so an an inner inquiry I guess you know for myself 
Um, and then actually when I got back off the boat, I, I was originally looking for a marketing um, consultant to help me kind of work out what's next in my career. Yeah. And, I, and then I came across a guy called Andrew Wallace who ran a school of wizards. Um, so it was a um, it was a school for psychotherapy mm-hmm. um, and and I'd never seen anyone do it like that. So he um, he brought you in. You did two years for a weekend a month. You'd go and sit on cushions in this um, in his old schoolhouse with no plan and no, you know, um, uh, no agenda um, and literally work with the emotions. So we had, you know, constellation workers, uh, we had psychotherapists, we had body workers, um, people in the top of their fields, and we would just sit and go, you know, right, Carmen, what's going on for you today? And you're like, oh, uh, you know, whatever, a conversation, but then it just, the exploration of that, um, you know, I was always really excited to go, but I dreaded it, because I was never sure what I would reveal about myself. (laughs) I'm laughing. I'm laughing out of empathy because I hear you like, oh shit, we you know, let's open that door. Oh, let's not, you know. <laughs> like, really, is there more in here? Is there more in here? Um, you know, and I, and even in everyone else, I mean, the impact of everyone else's process because yeah. you know the connectedness, obviously, of all of us is like that. What goes on for them is part of what goes on for you. Um, and I guess you know, I had you know that big um under self-understanding of my own um non-forgiveness of myself um i also went through a really huge process about not having children so that had been something as you said kind of like you plan life out and then you're choosing you're Mm -hmm. opting out of that you know i opted out of having children and actually one of the last things that went on for me and my ex was um you know a moment where i thought i could get pregnant and I thought that would be the worst thing in the world. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's not how I'm meant to feel if I if I was to have a baby. Um, so I had to do, you know, a lot of work around, I think at that point I was probably late 30s, early 40s. And, and really then, you know, start asking myself how important is it to have children? Um, and how do I feel about that? Um, and I always felt, I always, I think, felt that I would... I wanted a family, you know, I was one of four. I'm close to both my brothers and my sister and my mum and dad. And so it was a big part of what I wanted in life. Mm. So it was a real grief to go through at the time, knowing that that I'd walked away from something where I could have done, but also like, would it, would it, would it still show up in my life and hold that hope, I guess, that maybe one day it would. Um, but I kind of also knew that it made me inquire into how I wanted that to come about. Um, and for me, it was always about having a connection. It was more important about the relationship rather than just having children. It was about the family unit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it had to be when I met someone that I really connected with deeply. Um, and, you know, it's it's been one of those things, again, in the weirdness where people go, well, you know, you, you can't meet. So it, it it's a bit fairy tale, right? You're going to meet, you're not going to meet someone and it be like that. And I used to think, yeah, but I think it will be. You know, for me, and so there's always this, you know, there was a, the fairy dream in my head of how life could be. Yeah. Um, and I almost wouldn't let anyone take that away from me. It, that that felt very true to me, um, about living a life that felt peaceful, where my mind, I could control my mind, but I was also, I could also feel at peace with myself and experience joy as fully as I could, and experience life and experience love as deeply as I could. 
Um, so it, I guess part of that drove me um, on that route of curiosity. Yeah. And I guess we've all explained it's it's almost the curiousness of life, right? And this curiousness of human um, behavior and why, you know, my questions were, well, why would I behave like that? Is that is that human behavior or what's gone on for me in my childhood and my, um, uh, you know, where do I need to be healed to accept all parts of me? Um, because, you know, again, we're all... Um, we're all human so we do have the shame and the guilt and the those emotions and and the moment we we try to push them aside and say that's not part of us that's when we separate within ourselves so how do we you know how do we accept everything about us to feel yeah. that whole? um and i guess yeah a deep knowing that i knew i could feel like that but i didn't know quite how to navigate it so i'm just gonna hop over to andrew quickly but the last question we just on the school of wizards when when you saw yourself sitting on those couches and I, and I, and I, I'm laughing because I've, I've had the same experience and I'm assuming the same as you coming from a sporty corporate banking, you know, rural upbringing to be sitting on a cushion with someone talking about probably past lives, constellations. Did you have that identity crisis in the beginning? Like, Hey, I don't belong here or this is woo woo or I'll never get this. Or I don't fit in. I mean, I, I mean, I know I struggled with that. Did, did you have that internal wrestle going on in the early days? I remember the first session I had with him, right? So it was so easy. He'd written a book called um, Call Off the Search. Um, so someone said, you need to meet this guy. Um, I researched him. I bought his book. I emailed him. He said, come next week. It was all, there was flow in it, right? Um, I turned up at his house um, and I felt naked. I felt like he could see who I was and that whatever I did, the way I walked, the way I spoke, it said, it does, it said so much. And, yeah. and so I stood, sat in front of him, shooting myself, <laughs> but at the same time really being heard and seen. Yeah. And um, as Andrew can, can test, because he's also done something similar, he does an energy work where he gets you to kind of jump around these colorful blankets, right? And in it, he's like, where are you? And I'm like, okay, I'm in Sir Edmund Hillary School at Base Camp Everest, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh where are you now i'm on the boat where are you now i'm in a boardroom and he's kind of like it doesn't you know all of those essentially all of those things are still part of you and you still bring you with it but mm. what you where you're at the minute is just confused and we're gonna have to strip you back so that you can fully trust inside you who you are and i think there's probably i walked away at peace really at peace and felt safe and just he said look i'm starting a two-year course and i'm like i'm in and, and even for me to commit to being somewhere for a year rather than take off and travel and go and, yeah. you know, away, I was like, okay, uh, something tells me this is just right. Um, so I guess in the safety of that space, um, I almost, and then when we all met up, I thought, God, here's, here's my women, here's my tribe. You know, they, they and, and some more woo-woo than me, right? Much more woo-woo. So I was like, okay, I'm not the weirdest person in the room. This is good. <laughs> so it kind of helped me, uh, really, yeah, helped me um, start to embrace who I was. And like that's part of me, you know? Awesome. Um, you know, and I kind of go, I, I am all of it, right? I love, still love exploring. And, you know, I remember being in Patagonia and walking and hiking. And, and then the next minute I'm dancing, you know, my bad tango in Buenos Aires and then and then in a boardroom in a suit and it's like I can be all those people yeah. I don't have to be one or the other I used to think oh I can't be that if I'm a hippie 
Mm. And I used to think it was a negative about being a hippie. And now I celebrate my hippiness. It's like, yeah, I am a little bit random. Yep. And I'm a bit weird, but hopefully that makes it a little bit more interesting than just knowing what you're going to get every day, right? And just to live it every day, don't you <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you lucky? Absolutely. Well, they say we're the system, life's a mirror of our internal internal self, right? Um, so Andrew, how did your healing start? Right. Obviously, also didn't plan, you know, soon after getting married. Um, you know, yeah, so, Got married in 2000, uh, December 2010 in Australia. There you go. Whereabouts? Okay. Uh, the Bundaberg. Um, and yeah, yeah. Long, that's a whole other story. Um, anyway, and then came back um, and yeah, within within five or six months, uh, it was it was all over. Mm -hmm. um, and then the same year, my dance partner of nine years um decided that she was going to stop dancing and uh have a family so <clears throat> in one one year my whole life just did that I, I didn't know which way was up i didn't know who i was what i was going to do um it was also we were kind of just coming out of it you know the sort of global crash of 2009 and and all that kind of stuff and big corporations were, were crashing and banks were going under and and I guess I just suddenly realized the sort of impermanence of everything and how, you know, what do you really hang your hat on? What do you really, what's, what's, where's the ground, you know? Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, I remember sitting uh, at, at home, um, you know, during the, during the separation and stuff. And, and even in the immense pain and confusion of it, there was such a stillness. It was like, if this is as bad as, like if this like this pain is as bad as it's get like this is okay like there was I don't know there was this sort of, almost a, the the eye of the storm I could just sense that stillness and I was like okay I got this like whatever the stillness is I want more of this because I don't want to get caught up in the storm right of what's going on in my life mm. and it kind of it it just was this deepening into that that consciousness that I am the awareness of what I am or, or that I am awareness and consciousness rather than the, the story and the storm that flies around. Um, and then um, I threw myself into my work um, as well as I made a kind of a vow to myself that I was going, because I hadn't really even talked to my wife about my, my deep spiritual beliefs. You know, I got so used to keeping them to myself. It was a, my own personal relationship with God. You know, no one else needed to know what I thought of God or of life. But I think that was a massive mistake, particularly with those, you know, my wife, for example. Um, and that's what I said in my sort of purge the other day, you know, that I probably wasn't able to, to show up fully and, and, and authentically, um, you know, which is maybe, you know, maybe it was one of the reasons why it didn't work. But anyway, um, so I vowed to, to, to find my tribe, to connect with people. And, you know, when you make an intention in the world, it's interesting how the universe slowly and gently brings these things into your life, right? And, and you know, that's what happened. And I just started to encounter more and more people that were on a spiritual path. Um, but anyway, I was still, I was in the, you know, at the same time, I was still in the fuck you world. I'm going to take back control. Um, and I, and, uh, you know, I went a little bit schizo, if I'm honest. Um, I, I used to count everything down, like five, four, three, two, one. Because I, like, and, and my, I mean, I'm not like the most OCD person, but my flat was spotless. It, like, I put everything back, my, my shoes were together, like, 
because I, it was the only thing I felt I could control. I could control what I ate. I could control what I do with my body and I could control my surroundings. Everything else, I was like, well, you know, it can go to hell, right? And so I became this control freak. Um, and, but, but, but within doing that, my body started to contract. I went into fear. I was in fear state. I was in survival mode, you know? So I then basically started to acquire some pretty serious chronic illnesses, you know, wow. skin disorders, uh, chronic fatigue, you know, brain fog, depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, digestive issues, um, you know, you name it, joint pain. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, but I was running, I was, I looked the fittest I'd ever been. Like I, I was ripped at a six pack, you know, um, you know, on the outside, I looked amazing. Right. But inside I was, I was just broken. Yeah. Um, and, uh, went to a GP and I kind of told him my, my symptoms and he was like, well, you know, you're a 38 year old dancer. Like, what do you expect, mate? You're going to, you're going to have a bit of aches and pains. And I was just like, I had a count of 10 before I slapped him. Right. Cause anyway, hence that's the last time I've been to a GP. Um, but anyway, um, I then, um, tried to take over a dance studio. I got the opportunity of taking over a dance studio, which cost me six months of my life and about 20,000 pounds. Uh, and which that could then collapse. I realized that it was a, it was a toxic dump that I was uh, getting myself into. So I had to pull back. Um, and by that stage I was done. I, I basically, I was sitting on my bedroom floor talking to my mate and just going, I just, I just don't know what to do. I'm, I'm done. Right. And he just kind of, he just said like, like a throwaway comic. Well, if you can't go forward and you can't go back, go sideways. <laughs> and it, I don't know. It, and I was just like, what, yeah, what am I doing in London? Like, what am I doing? Beating my head, head against a brick wall. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I have nothing here, nothing keeping me here. So I decided then to uh, sell up everything um, and, and go traveling, traveling around the world and, and just work my way around the world. Um, I kind of what I maybe just missed out of my story is that um, in 2005, I was very lucky enough to do, you know, Strictly Come Dancing here in the UK, the, the equivalent of Dancing with the Stars. Mm. So um, I did have, you know, some, I obviously had money and, and had that kind of the business and all that kind of stuff. Um, but at this point kind of, I'd lost most of it. Um, and so I was just like, you know what, I, I can't lose anymore. I can, I can only gain. So that's what I did. So I sold everything up, moved in with a, a mate in his, in his room, uh, in his house and, um, uh, paid back most of what I, uh, borrowed out of the loan. Um, so I had 50,000 pound back in my, in my business loan and, and I went traveling on it. As you do. Uh, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> there are different ways you should do that but anyway yeah, no, i hear you i understand so, i understand the state you're in so it makes complete sense yeah, you just, you're not thinking straight you're just like, like oh, i gotta get out yeah, yeah I, I, gotta, I gotta pull the cord right otherwise this 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 uh, plane is is gonna crash right um and uh so i went traveling for about six months um i had a uh, had a work gig in st lucia uh so that was my starting point and then went to cuba traveled around uh, the east coast of uh, America, drove, um, and then into Colorado, where I went to a Buddhist retreat for a week. Wow. We're about um, to Colorado. I've, I've spent quite a bit of time in Vail. So. so do you know Shambhala? No. Okay, so Shambhala, I didn't realize when I was, because literally when I was at home here in London, I just Googled like spiritual retreat around the world, right? Yeah. And Shambhala came up and I didn't, I didn't realize it was like, it's a, it's a whole kind of Buddhist Zen tradition, right? It's, it's a whole lineage. Uh, I just thought it was a mountain retreat in Colorado. Anyway, 
So um, I signed myself up for that. There was only a couple of things that I'd actually kind of signed myself up for on the journey. Otherwise, it was a, a blank canvas. Um, and um, so, and, and the irony was like, so like at this stage, when I started the journey, I was, I had no appetite for life at all. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, nothing turned me on. Like humanity was a, a cesspool. I hated life. I hated the world. I hated myself. You know, I, I was just this angry little ball of, stress um anyway so i went and did my my work in sanusha which you know you, you're hanging around with billionaires you know it's a five-star inclusive resort where people come in to to get well and get happy or get drunk whichever they want to choose um and then i sort of went from there and then i went to cuba right where you're going to one of the poorest countries in the world i uh, landed up meeting some beautiful people who live like on a hundred dollars a month you know um and then the next stop was miami where you're back into billionaire land and I remember, you know, walking down, you know, at South Beach or whatever, and the, the Lamborghinis and the, and the huge, like, cocktail glasses like this and the big boobs and all the fakeness. And I was just like, you know, just get me the hell out of here. So, unfortunately, I was only there for a weekend. Hired a car um, and, and, and started driving up uh, the East Coast of America. Anyway, so went on to Buddhist retreats in, um, in Colorado met amazing amazing people there and it was like the first time in in, in years where I, I actually started to feel my heart like cracking open like melting like i could feel my emotions because i don't know if, if you've kind of or people that have suffered from depression we you, you just numb right you can't feel anything you can't really feel that angry you, you you don't feel that sad you don't feel happy you're just like this this gray right um and i just started to feel right i started to feel emotions i, I think i was starting to cry and you know you were around people that were doing deep work really opening up being vulnerable talking about their stuff you know and i was like oh my god these are real people talking about real stuff and crying and being authentic and i was like oh my god like because this is the way forward and and so that was the beginning of you know sort of um group therapy work and sitting in circles and talking about stuff um you know and it was interesting to to i was wasn't really a buddhist and i didn't really know what Buddhism was really until I didn't really know that they didn't really believe in God, right? And I remember sitting around a circle and going, "Why is no one talking about God, right?" <laughs> and I even brought it up, and they were like, they kind of just like brushed me to one side, like. And then there was a Hindu in 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 the mix, and he came to me and goes, "You know, Buddhists don't actually believe in God." And I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> that wasn't in the textbook at home. Yeah. So that wasn't in the textbook at home. It's like, what? Oh, oh exactly. Yeah. No, no, no. So, you know, and again, this has kind of inspired me to really start exploring other religions like Hinduism and Deism and Buddhism and, you know, Christianity and, and Judaism and all that. And I'm like reading all these different kind of, you know, getting a synopsis, you know, and, and what I've done is, as I've done that, I really just started to see the, the golden threads that run through all these faiths, right? And, and that's all you kind of need to know, right? Like the, we, all the different religions and faiths have their, their radical sides, their funny human dogmatic aspects. Mm-hmm. But essentially, we all believe in a higher power. We all believe in, in love and truth. Um, and, and, and I guess those are the threads that I started to pick up. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then uh, carried on to Colorado, sorry, to, to Calgary, drove through Vancouver, uh, through the Rockies to Vancouver, down to San Francisco, San Francisco to LA, and in LA was the only other booking that I had on the journey, and that was, um, uh, there's a business called soundstrue.com. I don't know if you know Sounds yeah. True. Uh, you got to check it out, dude. It's it, it was probably one of my saving graces for my my divorce. Uh, it was the only thing that could help me go to sleep. 
So it's basically oh. that's on um, it's on iTunes. Um, yeah. They've got their podcast. Um, a woman, Tammy Simon. She she interviews people, everyone from um, you know gurus and 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 Indian saints and and um, sadhus through to brain surgeons and people talking about you know um, epigenetics and uh, um, um, uh, neuroplasticity and, and, and all these kind of things right um and she just has this most beautiful soft velvety voice and i actually put her on uh, in my earphones and that would would put me to sleep when i when i couldn't sleep right um anyway so i went to one of her their conferences in la yeah with all these amazing speakers uh marion williamson um eckhart tolle um uh deep no deep wasn't there but just amazing amazing speakers um and also i was uh, there for a week um, and then I came back to London for a bit and then I went home to South Africa for some time. So that was kind of my journey. And, and although physically I was still pretty much a wreck mentally and emotionally, I was almost a different person. I'd really, you know, had that time to just be with myself, that time to slow down, get off the treadmill and really ask those really three, for me, three most fundamental questions. One, who are you? Two, what do you really love? And three, what do you deeply fear? And actually four, and how how can you be of service? Like, how are you going to be a part of the, the big mix, right? What's your part to play? Um, and and I really had time to kind of explore those and and even just start that journey because that that is an ever ever you know an ever going process. Yeah. You know, you never get to the bottom of those questions. So that was that was the beginning of my kind of spiritual path, I guess, uh, in a practical sense. Um, and um, and ever since then, it's just you know synchronicity after synchronicity after synchronicity has has brought me to here um, to be with the beautiful Carmen and Soul Hub. Brilliant. So let's we'll we'll hop back into what you do after South Africa. But Carmen, so the School of Wizards, School of Wizards, right? Yeah. So 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 once you got through that two year journey, did you did you start coaching, counseling? How did, how did you start helping people and being of service, and then how did that transition into Soul Hub? Yeah. Um, I think it was halfway through. It was kind of, I, I, I went, this is the work that I want to do, but I don't really want to go and now be a psychotherapist and spend five years. You know, I was at the, thinking I'm way too old to start, to start all this again. What's another way in? Um, and actually I was kind of walking with a friend in the park and she said, what, what about counseling? And the irony is, right, my, that's what my mum does. Um, and yet, you know, coming back, you're like, no, I don't want to be like my mother, right? But you are like, you are like your mother. In fact, you're very much. <laughs> um and as i said earlier like you know she's still working i mean uh lockdowns uh put it on hold for a bit she's 75 um and i've never heard her moan about a day's work she always loved what she did so partly going well you know i can do this till i you know i never have to stop working right it's not like i've got to finish the job and marketeers you know are, are suddenly out of date in your mid-20s right it's a hard position to hold in uh in your later years so i went back to counseling um and did a three-year like di diploma um and actually in that i went out to uh see a friend in seattle when she got us tickets for oprah get the life you want weekend hey. um, <laughs> so a massive auditorium packed full um, of just incredible energy. So she had people like um, Elizabeth Gilbert and Rob Bell. Um, and then just, you know, Oprah, 
I hadn't necessarily seen her hugely in that light. She'd done some work around Soul Sundays um, at that point. Um, but I, you know, I knew her more for the TV personality rather than necessarily the spiritual woman she is. So to see her on stage and just shine, um, you know, I just sat there going, um, it, you know, I knew I had to be there, but also went, okay, I want to create somewhere for mental well-being. And, and mm. I... And I think, you know, uh, the experience particularly, so in my um, training, I did a lot of work in addiction um, and the place I worked in, you know, you, you never send people necessarily to the nicest nourishing spaces, right? I used to think, well, it's almost like it's the um, porter cabin at the bottom of the car park or it's, you know, you don't walk into these swanky, um, you know, therapy rooms, right? It's all a bit hidden and a bit like, you're like, how am I meant to feel good about coming to these places? Um, and wouldn't it be incredible to have a space that felt like that? Well, because it's you know, mental health is seen as a sickness, right? It's And it's not talked about. It's this fringe thing that we don't want to talk about. I mean, like, if, you, if you talk about mental health, then you're, you're a nutter or you're sick or, yeah. you're, you know, if you break your leg, it's okay but if you you know if you have something mentally problem then then you know so i think that's why it all gets mm. shelved yeah. i've got a wonderful I, story about that after this but carry on and again back in those days it was before kind of you know prince harry and william talked about mental well-being which in the uk kind of opened that door and i knew like in the states that it was much more particularly in portland and seattle you know i have friends who live there and, and they're on every corner there's someone doing tarot card readings or you know it's very much it's very open it's part of their their daily life that everyone goes to a therapist yeah. um i thought wouldn't it be incredible if that if it felt like that in the uk um so that really i remember coming back and doing a kundalini yoga lying there and and i just soul hub came to my head and went okay i, I need to do it and a bit like that moment in the dark room it's like in that moment i went i can see it and then all the fear comes in and you think, oh, my God, how do I do it? How do I where do I start? Um, so I, I literally went, OK, I'm a marketeer, brand expert. I should know how to do this. Just build the brand. Yep. So I literally stuck on my uh, uh, wardrobe, you know, do a website, get a logo, <laughs> just start one step at a time. Um, and that's really where Soul Hub started. I had a friend, Rob, who wrote the first piece. I just went and said, could you just write about his was running, his love of Park Run. He was a director here and one of the first places Park Run started. So he talked about his love of, um, of community. Um, and, and I just allowed, I think, it, you know, it's been one of my best teachers um, and I've allowed to hold, I've held it quite organically as I've changed. And I think partly because I know that I didn't want to set something in stone. I'm so used to doing that in businesses, right? Writing goals and plans and business plans. And, and I was like, it's just a load of bollocks. Like there's got to be another way to run a business that's felt, feels much more heartfelt. Well, is that exactly, but I mean, that's letting go and following the intuition, right? Because the, these things come into our lives. If we open to them, if we, if we concrete in our, you know, every time I speak to, to my guides, you know, they're like, no, 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 you're thinking, why, why are you boxing yourself? You've got to think, just let go and just follow, you know, because when you're in that expansive state, then the weirdest opportunities come across your door, yeah. you know? Exactly. And, yeah. and it has a soul hub. It's been incredible. It's like a magic web of just connection, right? Um, and we've just been going through an exercise of, of almost redefining it because it has 
to a certain extent lost its way in some respect, but in some respect not. And again, of course, my own business represents me and where I'm at in life, right? You know, my own um, floatiness through life. <laughs> I was very organic and <laughs> random. And yeah. 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 So I just... Just a the quick analogy bit. I wanted to share is it's been kind of like a wild garden. It's beautiful, you know, it's got amazing flowers and everything, but it just needs a little bit of, you know, yeah. gardening and, and yeah, tailoring. Yeah. Um, so it's just a quick question about Solha for clarification, because you mentioned the early, you know, therapy rooms were in the back corners. Was was the original concept when you came back from Oprah to have this beautiful light? Shick space that was inviting warm had good energy was that the initial thought uh, or was it go online and then get that space where, where was your head at in those days well still and it still is right it's a place it's a place in nature like i remember seeing a, an incredible home up in portland um mm. up on the um uh west west coast um and just seeing this wooden beautiful home mm. glass and around the trees so i think it's is it oswald bay or something and it's got trees around and then the beach and i'm like that's there it is that's it how do i bring that back and and i honestly think it hasn't materialized because it hasn't i haven't found my home um and we're we're know, not we're, ready it's not it's not ready to come about yet yeah and i think yeah. we've got to evolve into that place where we can hold that energetically you know, um, and we're, you know, it's coming. It's, yeah. yeah we, and I think nothing, you know, when, again, you look back in hindsight, right. And you go, if I had gone and just got a place, it wouldn't be what it is. So yeah. you, like with everything, you have to build the, the, build the brand, build the community, um, build the energy around it. And then almost, you know, particularly with the virus and everything that's gone on, it would be probably one of the hardest things to be managing through all this. So I, I almost go, you know, I had to meet Andrew. We, our dreams had to align, um, mm. and then almost the next stage is where where do we both want to be? Is it in the city or is it in the in somewhere wilder that people can come to? Which one is that? And and we're playing with that. So there's no uh, it's a, it's been there at the core of it. Um, and then I guess what I've done then is appreciate that you know you can't just build something out of nothing. It is about the people. Mm. Um, and so it's been about building a team of um, people going back to, as you said, well, how do you navigate your way through this? You know, it's going back to the original where I started of, you know, who do you ring? Where do you go? And so we've built a team of people who are nutritionists and body workers and spiritual healers and tantric sex workers and, you know, a whole range of stuff that actually, like, if you come to me and go, I, you know, I think it's talking therapy and that in that we uncover that actually you need to do some work on your sexual energy. And yeah. then I've got someone I can refer you to, but, you know, coming from the world I came from, I wouldn't know where to start in terms of finding those people. And as we've all talked about, they then suddenly all just appeared, right? All these, yeah. all this, these experts in different um, different fields. And so it's been about that, about being able to provide a home for people to come to when they're on their, their journey of understanding themselves. Yeah. And, and how long has Seoul have been going for now? Uh, five years. <clears throat> so, yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, again, it's funny when you look back, right. It's all manageable. Like I, I went back, so I was still working. I was working for a clothing brand, retail brand, Jack Wills. So I was working for them part-time and doing my counseling training. Mm. Um, so that's three, four years of my life <laughs> um, of making that happen. And Soul Hub was there, but it could never be any, it couldn't be any bigger because I didn't have the time and energy to put just into it. 
And then I remember going to Hong Kong on a work trip to find another store to sell more sweatshirts. Because um, we and... need more sweatshirts, right? Time <laughs> <laughs> went, why don't you just go and go shopping or something? And I was like, I can't bear it. I mean, a bit like you said around Miami, I like walked out onto the street in Hong Kong and it was all, you know, high-end shops of more handbags and more shoes. And I'm like, I just... I'm like, what has the world come to? Like, seriously, are we spending all our time just going around shops consuming? It just, and I thought, and I'm playing a part in that. And, and you know, as we talked about, when's the exit point? I mean, I literally came back and went to, she's a close friend of mine, Claire, and I just said, Claire, I can't do anymore. I'm done. Yeah. You know, I, I need to jump into Soul Hub and give that the time and energy. Why am I spending my time and energy doing something that's just, that just doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't feel right for the world? I don't think we, you know, we don't need it. So that's... and was and was just pulling back all the way back to the landmark stuff because you know, just chatting to my friend today, he said their whole mission's about doing something that's right for the world. Had that sat with you from the early, you know, I'm assuming that's when your work started, but had that in that sort of thread stuck with you throughout your whole journey saying at the end of this action need to be something that's going to be in the betterment of the world. Um I I would say maybe underneath, I think it got hidden by, um, you know, having the, the nice things I also enjoyed, right? Like having a nice house or, um, but when the crux came to it, I'd always choose something a bit different. You know, I choose to go spend my money on travel. You know, I've still never owned a home. Mm. So it's, it's never been uh, that important. Um, but I guess I, I um, I don't think it fully got uncovered until that last, that last piece in my last job where I just went, I can't do it. And partly because I was doing my counseling training at the time and, and really even in work, you know, I was a, a like head of brand and I, not 80% of my time was spent with young uh, adults, um, helping them navigate life. Mm. I did like hardly any work, you know, it was about imagining the emotions in the team, right? And, and all I could hear is myself telling them to go live the life that they want to live, you know, and I'm like, right, come on, Carmen, time. So yeah. um, a bit, you know, I guess a, it wasn't always that clear. It was a bit of balancing um, throughout. And then, it, and then actually in the same way of feeling that feeling, the work I do one-on-one -on -one with people, you know, and we have the same is, is quite, it's beautiful. You know, as you were talking about before we came on the podcast about when you see the thing clicking people's eyes and they go, what you mean? I don't need to live that life anymore. Mm. I have a choice. You go, that's gold dust. That That is like a win-win, right? That you can yeah. help someone get there um, and play a part in that and, um, and do it for yourself. And you think, well, there's nothing better to do in the world than that. No, ma'am. Andrew, pulling back to you. So now you've done your America trip. You're back in Africa to suit. Um, where to next? So I guess I came back to London uh, with pretty much nothing. Mm. Um, had a little bit of stuff in storage. Um, but I guess what I did have was an incredible sort of drive um, and understanding or, or deeper understanding of my purpose. Um, I kind of, again, was was kind of wanting to create I get I, I even struggle to say it now and and to be a healer I guess to to be a force for good right to help people to um be of service um and um 
and it was interesting. Uh, I saw obviously continued my, my my teaching and stuff. And I remember walking down Piccadilly, you know, and and just feeling like a, a pebble in a stream, like just being so chilled, so zen, and not feeling that I'm caught up in the stresses of of city life, and and just wanting and knowing that that was so precious to me, and that I was going to really make sure that I change my life, that I don't get caught up um, in the dramas. And and it's interesting, like you know, obviously that was. Well, six years ago now and you, you know you you feel it you live in london and you just get caught up in, in the current right um but um so god so that was yeah and then um 2000 i guess i i went back and i started working and um doing my day job of teaching uh and dancing you know performing and, and doing all that kind of stuff um but then i think the next kind of milestone was uh i wanted to deepen my my embodied practice so if studying breath um and and other sort of embodied practices mm. other other healing um uh okay. modalities thank you so and obviously i started doing yoga and back in like 2009 or 2010 with my my ex-wife um and that i found really helpful as well and it was obviously great to keep the, the old body moving um for the dancing so um, I went back to yoga, well, carried on yoga whilst I was traveling and but kind of started to do it more, more intensely. And then in 2008, 2019, I did a, a qualified, I did my 200 hours, um, yeah, yoga yeah. Training. and you know, that, that process was amazing. I mean, I, I never went in there to become a yoga teacher, but just to, again, deepen my knowledge of, of the breath, mind, body, spirit connection. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was again an amazing amazing experience it just opportunity to do a lot of self-reflection um and self-inquiry and all that stuff um and again i started to see again the golden thread through my life and all the things that had happened in my past that kind of had brought me to this point and and how so many people had said to me you know that you know that spirituality and healing the healing journey or being a healer was kind of my path yeah. um and i just started to see much clearer about how i'm going to fuse all the different aspects of my life together um and, and i guess that's my frontier now right of of using my dance i mean and, and now when i look back at my dance and i use dance as my kind of one of my biggest strongest spiritual teachers yeah. um you know the metaphysical aspect of dance so that's kind of my frontier now um of um fusing you know psychotherapy the psychotherapy um spirituality um and then the sort of the the magic of of dance um and the body you know the wisdom of the body um and and so that's my kind of current you know current evolution and how, how i'm moving forward so yeah i'm going to give you the enormous responsibility and don't butcher this uh andrew of how the two of you met <laughs> so get it right <laughs> sorry brother there was two sides to the story right but i'll give you mine three, three um, sides three sides your side my side and the truth somewhere in between yeah exactly <laughs> well i guess it's a testimony to to your belief in synchronicity or into the magic of life right so um I am in a cold, wet English day outside a polling station, um, just come out of voting for the, the local elections or whatever. And there's a, a middle-aged or late middle-aged man, clumsy, very clumsily trying to take a selfie of himself at, outside the polling station. So first thing I'm going, why does anyone want to take a photograph of themselves at a polling station? But anyway, being the kind guy that I am, I was like, 
oh, dude, you, you want to help me take a photograph? He goes, oh, yeah, please. I'm like, oh, where are you from? <laughs> goes, another one. Oh, another one. Hey, Africans. Hey. So, yeah, from South Africa. So, yeah, duh, where, whereabouts? And he goes, oh, Peter Marisburg. I went, oh, geez, really? Yeah. So that's where, where I'm from. And, uh, and then it turns out, basically, he also went to my high school, obviously, a fair few years before me. Crazy. Um, and then also, I just literally got back from a walking safari in Botswana. Uh, he is a walking uh, safari guide in Botswana, all around Africa. He knew the people I'd been walk walking with. <laughs> Um, as we then were walking home and he lives like literally 30 seconds from my door, yeah. we realized that his wife was born in Zimbabwe, where I was, also moved to Peter Marisburg and lived in Peter Marisburg, and that her mother was in the same nursing home as my dad. No ways. That's so it. there was all these kind of parallel universes, right? Yeah. Anyway, so I got friendly with them and, and friendly with his wife, Sue, and um, you know, chatting to them about my, my journey and what I was passionate about and, you know, the yoga and, and, and the sort of healing aspect. And they're like, Oh, you've got to, you've got to meet Carmen. So I was like, yeah, okay, cool. Um, and, um, at that point, um, I'd taken the responsibility of, um, uh, hosting a table at a big gala dinner dance, hmm. uh, an event that I'd already, you know, um, organized and, and started to run, but I was hosting a table. So, uh, but because it was just pre-COVID, everyone was bailing out on me. And I basically had paid for this, you know, table of 10 and I had no one to come. Um, so I asked Lloyd, uh, Sue and Lloyd, if they, they wanted to come. But obviously Lloyd was in Africa doing a safari. So Sue said she would invite her, her good mate, Carmen. Um, and I was like, okay, great. And then just before the, the gala, I was running a workshop, a dance workshop, um, and she brought Carmen along to that. Walk in, dance out. Yeah, walk in, dance out, it was called. Um, and uh, we went for dinner after that. And obviously, you know, just sort of rewinded a little bit, but um, six months before that, I ended a very dramatic, kind of toxic relation. I mean, it was, you know, it was very, it's a very conscious relationship, a very dynamic relationship, yeah. but it, it, it kind of, um, I decided when I left that relationship, because I'd become a serial monogamist, I'd moved from one long-term relationship to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, I decided, you know what? N enough is enough. <laughs> I am going to take a year out. I am not going to see anyone. Yeah. You know, I'm done with dating. You know, I just want to have a, a relationship with myself, right? Yeah. So there I am sitting at dinner, you know, with these two lovely ladies. And I'm, I'm really, I'm not even looking. I'm not there at all. No, you know, <laughs> no consideration at all. Um, and then we went to the ball. You came to the ball. Um, and then, you know, we got talking about stuff. And then I started to work for Carmen and do some workshops for her, mm -hmm. um, you know, for, for Sohub. Um, and then we found ourselves just talking for hours and hours and hours on the phone during lockdown. Obviously, we couldn't, we couldn't see each other. Um, and then we started to do the walks in the park together, you know, with Carmen, you, you gotta, you gotta walk with her first, um, being the soul walker. Um, so we, we started doing really long walks in the park and, um, I don't know, I guess there was, there was a, there was an attraction there in, in a sense. I just knew we were meant to, we were meant to do something together. I didn't, at that point, I didn't know whether it was romantic or business, but I just knew that we, we were, we were brought together for a reason. Um, and you know, Carmen is, uh, wouldn't be my type, you know, um, I guess in, in sort of sporty and tomboyish and, uh, kind of just kind of not really my, my type, but, um, so again, I just, I just wasn't even entertaining it, but then the more we got to know each other and I, you know, and, um, 
uh, it was just such a massive resonance and, and attraction. And, and then I started to see her beautiful soul. Um, and, and she's just an incredible person. And, uh, yeah, I just started to fall deeper and deeper in love with her. And, um, and then lockdown basically forced us together in quite a, quite a cozy, intense process. <laughs> Uh-huh. Um, and uh, <laughs> baptism of fire, yeah. lockdown together, um, and you know, and and that's that's had its challenges as well. You know, kind of spending every single day, twenty four seven, with each other. You know, and and figuring out what what that is, and you know, you get used to. I mean, I like my space, I like my own time, and that, and that kind of stuff. So you know, we've been navigating all that kind of stuff. Um, and um, yeah, I don't know. Is that a kind of clearer? <laughs> picture of the, the way we go together but yeah no so loving loving our joint ventures you know what's beautiful about about common is, is there's no pretext there's no subtext there's no mm. she's one of the most unjudgmental um kind of caring open people right and so uh what what's amazing about her is that we get as much satisfaction supporting each other and in championing each other and what each other do as we are in being excited about doing stuff together you know, and I also wanted to have a space, you know, a physical space to house um, my my dance and my um, sort of artistic healing. I would have basically healed through through artistic yeah. um, expression, um, and uh, you know, bringing people together basically authentically. And so we share this this love of that, and and, and basically supporting and uh, empowering people to be their fullest expression. And you know, and 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 Carmen does it through her storytelling. Uh, and I do it through people telling their story through movement. So yeah. we have this common thing of storytelling and empowering and inspiring people. And I think that's our that's our mutual love, right? That's beautiful. Did you get it right? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Good. Early version of all the, you know. Yeah, no, no. Dude, I'm sorry, that could have gone one of two ways, right? We know that. <laughs> I think you did it right. <laughs> so, so, so just don't just obviously always being conscious of time. We're coming on the two hour mark. Can you believe it? Um, let's talk about this bizarre time that we're in, right? And, and we talk about the collective energy and the quantum field and all the beautiful things of humans. Humans are tribal things. And, and I, and, you know, Andrew, you alluded to it with the church early on, church early on and sports fields. You know, I, my, my perception and understanding is humans want to belong to anything. You know, it's just, we tribal, it's what we want there. The most beautiful representation as a sport bully, you've got a sports field, you've got a CEO of a company and the, probably the person, their janitor, you know, they're wearing the same kit. Someone scores a goal, they'll hug each other, they'll be, because humans want to belong, right? In a time with everything that's going on in North America or hopefully ending in North America and and, and with COVID and isolation, it's it's been a crazy time when I think for all of us are longing that connection, longing for that connection, longing to be with our tribe what's your guys take on it and 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 you know my perspective it's been an amazing pause for mother nature and just for the world for everyone to reflect but what's your both your guys opinion on on how the last crazy 13 14 months has been and and where the upside is for for humanity and and for everyone on their journeys just up yeah. <laughs> um i guess i mean go, uh, you know talking about synchronicity uh, life unfolding, almost a big trust of of what is showing up, right? I have a real sense of like, this is all meant to be as it's meant to be. Um, there's no wrong in it. Um, and, and we're in this place because of essentially, I think, um, you know, how, how we have evolved 
um, and let's say just slightly got ahead of ourselves into and lost some of the the core elements of what's important in human existence. So, you know, time, as you say, community, uh, space, time, connection, um, nourishing the nature, um, or almost just the getting back to basics. Mm. Um, and that's not to say that there's not a role for like technological development and human development, but around um, waking us up and for us to be more conscious beings um, for whatever that might, wherever that might lead us as humans, whether it's off this planet onto another planet, I, I don't know, right? Um, but there's certainly, my sense is there's more going on out there than we can see. Um, and there's a bigger plan at, at play. Mm. Um, so I, a bit like you, Clint, I see it as a real moment to pause, right? And the only way of doing it, and I used to hear it in this, in myself anyway, just saying like, when can you get off the treadmill? You mm. know, how can, I wish the world would slow down. And it's like, wham, right? We've actually fully gone into like reset. Um, and, you know, more and more around us, where you hear people waking up and conscious about um, what's important in life and reprioritizing how that is. And I think with that becomes a contrast of um, all, all that has been suppressed. Um, so the pain and the hurt of those who have not been listened to and not been heard. And, um, and of course that needs to be healed. And the only way to heal it is to bring it into the light. Um, so I see nothing wrong with um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the uproar, the suppression of, of those who have not been necessarily um, able to share who they are. Um, mm. And this is, this is a, a very dramatic um, and, you know, uh, healing moment for, for the planet as a whole, both, you know, Mother Nature, um, but also humanity. So, you know, I fully welcome it. Um, and I think almost it's gone on and on because it's kind of like, right, you know, it's not, you're not done yet. Um, and at some point there will be a, enough of a collective energy um, to, to, to step up the momentum of mm. human evolution. Um, that's where I Beautiful. landed. Andrew? Um, Matt, I think, you know, what you were saying about belonging, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with a guy called Gabor Mate. He's a Hungarian um, uh, psychotherapist, um, mm. and uh, uh, yeah, he his thing is also you know uh, three primal needs for humans to belong and to be seen and to have a purpose. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think this this whole time is is given us as Carmen was saying, time to 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 slow down um, and to evaluate that um and, and and say when you slow down you start to feel and and all the emotions come up and and that's the time you know what is it um feeling is healing right mm. and people have been feeling a lot <laughs> um and i think um for me I, the, the analogy i see it is that the world has gone through a global flu um and like any flu um you know it, it, it's it's because you run down your immunity's down um and you're, you've been pushing yourself too hard and you, you're not nourishing yourself you're not nourishing your body so as a global community i think it's time that we we nourish ourselves both physically mentally emotionally the whole the whole gamut um so and i don't know just even before this i think there was a, a many people that felt like pre-2019 
that some shit, big shit was going to go down. Like we could feel it. We could feel it brewing. It's like, we could see the dark clouds coming, <laughs> you know, it was more and more fear where there was Brexit and Trump. And, you know, there was just, you know, the storms and the global, you know, it was just building, 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 building. Um, and so it's not going to no surprise, right. That we've kind of come to this and, and I believe everything is cyclical, right. Um, you know, everything, everything is born, everything dies, even planets and stars. Mm. Right. And, and so I feel that as humanity uh, and even the earth is kind of coming as, into its maturity. Um, you know, we, we humans have, have gone through the adolescent stage of living life to the full, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, going clubbing and getting drunk and having casual sex and, and all that kind of irresponsible stuff, you know, humanity, I'm hoping has, is, is, is turning a corner on that and yeah. starting to really see that we need to, to, to grow up as a race, as a, as a species and start taking responsibility for um, ourselves and our planet. Um, and if this is not a wake up call that we, then I don't know what is. And, and, you know, people go, Oh my God, it's like, I actually think it's been a quite a gentle nudge. I mean, compared to global catastrophes, I mean, we could have been hit by a meteor. We could, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, as, as sort of global <laughs> drama, I think it's pretty gentle, particularly in some parts of the world. So, um, I, I, you know, yeah, I think it's a gentle wake up call for everyone. It's an opportunity to reflect, to redefine who we are, what we, what we deeply love, what we deeply fear, and how can we all be of service to, to each other and to the planet. Thank you, man. That was beautiful as well. So an amazing time as everyone sat in silence and paused and watched too much Netflix possibly. Um, for Soulhub, must be really exciting, right? Because as, as people become woke, as people ask the questions, as people, I mean, I know in Australia, all the people living in the cities are trying to get to where I, where I live because they're like, well, what's the point, right? Um, why are we doing this to ourselves? Um, having the reflection must be a really exciting time for Soulhub. You know, the, the foundations have set five years any exciting plans that you've got? I mean, obviously dependent on what happens in this beloved world right now, but any exciting plans that you guys have got that you're willing to share of, of initiatives you're running, courses you've got coming up? Um, so as people, you know, seek the, seek the answers that they can have the opportunity to learn. Yeah. You sound like you've already got your soul hub, you see. We just need what, your home. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, Is that okay? <laughs> absolutely. 100%. Um, anytime. Franchise. Well, um, well, the plan is for me to be on a catamaran not so long. So the, there's always there's always a cabin for you on the catamaran. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, you know, I think it's been also a really great opportunity for us to pause and 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 I guess ensure that what we are communicating out there is clear for others. So we've been doing that work in the background. I think where we're landing is around um, almost the original purpose around like the the soul the soul stories um and how important this is this expression of who we are whether you do it through dance through cooking through writing your article through business um, however, however you create however you express yourself there there's a story right mm. uh, of who you are your narrative what what drives you and i think the core of soul how i think is to going to be helping facilitate people tell their story yeah. whether it's through a poem whether it's through a song a dance uh, yeah. a story um, you know, or, or say a cooking program or what, however, you know, we want to give people that platform to express themselves yeah. and their story. Yeah. And then I guess within that is depending, you know, 
we often talk about it being like your first um, inquiry into uh, spiritualism or waking up or life or whatever, however you want to frame it. And the nice thing is, you know, I think almost uh, as even with Greg connecting us to, mm. you know, there's people are, people ha- are looking at life differently and they're not quite sure of, of what that means or how to articulate it. But there's a sense of feeling that it's intrigued. They're intrigued enough about it. So, you know, bring in, so it's back to you kind of talking the corporate language, right. And coaching and being able to cross that mm-hmm. boundary. What we do well is, is something similar, right. You know, we come from different backgrounds so we can speak different languages. Um, but it's a common safe, um, haven for people to come and explore and help them understand themselves so doing it through kind of stories and but ultimately it is about self-expression and self-understanding and the more you understand who you are the better you can be express. in the world right yeah, yeah. Express. And it works both ways right the more you express yourself the clearer understanding you have of yourself right um, you know, uh, like I said before, feeling is healing, expressing is healing, but then vice versa, you know, the the, um, the, the process of understanding yourself, yeah, gives you the tools and, and the vocabulary and the, the peace of mind to to effectively express yourself. I just want to just hone on that to something that you sparked to mind is that for, and I, once again, always looking in the mirror and ask these questions because this journey mm-hmm. I've been through is as people come from the classic corporate, traditional white picket fence world, it's that sense of fear when you start expressing, when you start asking questions, when you start you're looking under the rabbit hole. What advice do you have people who, you know, they want to ask those questions, they want to start having an opinion, but, you know, as you said, to go on Facebook and, and have a rant is brave. You know, for people to say, I now do this, or I now do that, or these are my darkest fears, it's, it's unbelievably daunting. I know myself, once you let it out, it's unbelievably liberating. Um, but but what advice do you have to people who who kind of wrestling with it, but they still you know they, that old identity is kind of <laughs> holding them back and saying, don't you dare admit to that. Any 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 advice for people? But that is the problem, right? It's the identification with the ego. That is that is life's goal, right? Is to integrate your ego and and to, to figure out who you are. And and the, and the the quicker you can you can integrate your ego or let it let it not drive your life. You know, um, Marianne Williamson's got a great analogy of your ego is like your five-year-old in the back car is screaming and bitching and moaning and telling you what to do and it needs a wee and an in and a, and and you can't kick the kid out, right? You just got to keep the kid in the back, you know, in the back seat. But the kid is not driving the car; you are still driving the car. And and I, and I guess it's you know it's self-exploration. But but I guess what I wanted to say is compassion, compassion, compassion for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's 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 the insightful exploration but without the judgment without making anything good or bad or right or wrong just saying okay this is the story this is the truth this is the truth for me now this is my honest moment-to-moment truth um and and being able to in every moment express that you know in no, there is no such thing as white lies and black lies they're all just lies you know and, and the less you can lie to yourself the less you can lie will lie to others and therefore the more your life will turn out the way you want it to be and you'll actually know who you are but we've lied to ourselves incessantly about who we think we are, who we want to be, da, da, da. and actually we don't even know who we are. So we don't know who we are. How the hell is anyone else supposed to know who we are and give, give us what we want, right? So it's for me, the two most m- most vital things for, for self-inquiry, one is honesty and the other one is love. You have those two in good measure, you, you'll be fine. Awesome. Comment? Well, I guess I kind of, in terms of practicality, I almost, I mean, I completely agree 
And it's like people then go, well, how do I get there, right? And I always come back to probably, you know, as I've learned on my mm. journey, right, get quiet. Um, so find the peace, stop being busy, stop, you know, just doing the roles and actually go and find that quiet time, however that is, whether it's walking slowly or yep. whether it's, sitting, you know, it doesn't matter, but just mm. try and find the peace um, and, and allow the emotions to kind of come up. And, and inquire with those motions that they are they they are your truths right they're there for for a reason um and to take it as slow as as you need to you know mm -hmm. i think people suddenly jump to what the end conclusion is and like well that means i've got to write and tell everyone and i've got to, oh my god i've got to tell my mom and and you're like no you know it, one small step at a time it literally is you know because yeah. you don't know what is there it's like just this one thing what is it today that you need to do mm -hmm. for you it's building, it's building that, sorry, it's building that relationship with yourself, right? Yeah. That, that's the most thing. It's like having a relationship with yourself, an honest, loving relationship with yourself. That, like, if you, if you get that sorted, every other single relationship that you'll have with anyone else is going to be a dream. And, and I actually put up something on Instagram about that earlier this year. It's, it's, if you look at everything, like all the shit in the world, all the personal shit, if you just spend the time to love yourself and figure out what that means and obviously sit with stillness, 99, as you said there, Andrew, 99.9% goes away personally. And it's almost that that's too simple. You know, people want the books, they want the therapies, they want all the counts, they want. But if you just imagine if you just sort of that out and everything goes away, it's like, that's too easy. And the whole thing was, well, let it be easy. Just start with that. And trust me, the ripple effect would be amazing. Mm -hmm. mm. And I think just one last thing, but on, on a practical level, you know, do, do not underestimate the most closest thing we have to life. And that's our breath. People do not even know, they're not even aware of their breath, right? They don't even know they're breathing, right? Explore breath, however you can find. Even just being aware of your breath is a start, right? But there are many, many, many different types of breathing techniques. And that is an amazing way to, to connect mind with body, to, to open up space, to find stillness. Um, that's, I can't recommend breath work enough. I actually, so I've, I've been to a Wim Hof. I found Wim Hof years ago before he was even on Joe Rogan. So I've been into breathwork for years. And actually the, the lady coming on three from you in the podcast is a breathwork specialist because I believe in it so much. We did like a breath circle and it's fascinating. So I just echo that and it's just unbelievable. Um, even just the box breathing, right? As simple as it is, it will just calm you down. So let's wrap things up. Thank you so much, both of you, for all your time. Um, sorry, I got on your busy day of being in London. Sorry, um, too soon. Um, so obviously, we'll put all the links up to the socials. Everyone can find you, Instagram, websites. We'll put that all up. Um, it's been an absolutely fascinating chat. Thank you very much for, for sharing the time. Just to wrap us up, to take us home, um, the closing thoughts to, to anyone who's, you know, in the pain cave, in the dark thing of the soul, you know, who's, who's in despair, who, who knows they need to start, they knows, as you say, common, knows there's something else, um, but wants to take that first step. Any, any closing thoughts and advice so we can wrap this up? Um, I would say, I mean, it's always something actually I learned from the wizard, but trust, trust your own wisdom. Mm. You know, nobody else knows your path. Your path is your own unique one. No one's got the answers. You, the answers are within. Awesome. Andrew? Uh, ditto, but also um, uh, you're not alone. You know, if whatever you're going through, people have been going through for thousands and thousands and thousands of years before and will continue to go through. 
yeah. you know you're, you're not the first person to go through divorce you're not the first person to whatever it is murder someone you're not the first person to whatever hideous stuff has happened to you or you've done to someone else or whatever you know um you're not alone and and there are people out there who, who who've been there done it and, and and have come out the other side and and you know find those people who who are there to be who will be compassionate with you and and uh uh, and, and help you on the journey, but you know, you're not alone. Awesome. Thanks so much guys. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Thank you. Lovely. Thanks for having us.